Tell me about yourself, Miss Lowell, your work, your hopes, your podcast. Well, I, I work as a teacher. I also do field work and I, I write monographs. My hope is to discover a new variety of fern that has never been described or classified. I, I don't know what my podcast is. Do you, do you think it could be the same as my hope? Well, at any rate, that is my work and my hope, except for my podcast, which I'm not sure of. <laughs> Two things. I love your Elaine May. Thank it's you. It's great. Second, what a, what a what a good movie this is! Yeah. You're just making me think about it again. You know who's fucking cool? <laughs> Elaine May. Elaine May. Elaine May. <sighs> this is the shortest miniseries we've ever done, so I'm really diving in deep. I I asked to reschedule this episode. We were supposed to record it two days ago, and I said, "Can I just get like an extra two days to to build up more Elaine May context and really like I want to listen to all the Nichols and May albums and go into special features and reading different pieces and all this sort of stuff." And I just I I I after the last week, I just have the biggest fucking crush on her in the world. Yeah, and and I, I mean, mean that in every sense. Cool. I'm just like that's like the coolest career, you know. She's got the coolest sensibility. She's just like a fucking awesome person. Every story about her is cool. And also, you look at those early Nickel and May performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's kind of begging for a pasta dinner. She she was a very a very beautiful woman, and and is. But yes, absolutely. It, it, I bring this up only because it is so funny that like here's Nichols and May and they're this comedy team that's sort of like a massive generational shift, right? Where you're like, oh my God, these are these comedians who are like hip. They're like witty, they're urbane, and they are glamorous. Like Nichols and May felt glamorous and chic in a way I would argue comedians did not before that point, especially like comedy teams that were usually, you know, fucking two guys who sprayed seltzer down each other's pants or whatever. Absolutely. Yes. I, yes. It's funny because I Nichols looks like such a goof all the time in those pictures because he's yes. so tall and gangly and like he's got the blonde hair. And yeah, but like but yeah, whereas she is just like so stylish and and yet unassumed like, you know, she's can make fun of herself. And like, that's, of course, part of the magic. If she was almost always playing high status in those sketches uh and then you know she wants to direct films she wants to write films they let her make this film they insist that she star in it which she doesn't want to do and it's like here's elaine may who if you look at nichols and may career you're you're like well of course she was bound to be a movie star and she sort of like begrudgingly allows herself to be the co-star of this movie and plays the least glamorous character in the history of cinema absolutely she absolutely could have been like barbara stanwyck you know she could have had like you know i'm nodding she could have been jill clayberg she could have been like a uh, uh, goldie hawn you know i mean she could have there are a lot of things she could have done as an actress in film that she it feels like pointedly had no interest in doing it, 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 that's the whole thing we're going to dissect over the next month yeah over april April, because April is May this year, my friends. Oh, what's that? Oh, man, that's me hitting my knee, because that's a dang knee slapper, It's a dang knee slapper. Look, we're going to engage in some Nichols and May-esque high-wire comedy of our own. This is a little podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. I'm David. You got it. You got it twice. Uh, David's so nice, he said it twice. And... This is a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their career and are given a series of blank checks 
to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce, baby. And this is a miniseries on the films of Elaine May, a far too short career, but one that really has uh, humongous ripples. Uh, and it is called The Podbright Cast. Today we are talking her debut film, the only one that she stars in, A New Leaf. That's right, my friend. A New Leaf. A New Leaf with Walter Matthau and the great James Coco. Correct. I forced a, a Podbreak cast uh, I, without getting confirmation from you guys. I just felt like it had to be the title because the only other real option was Podcastar. Now, you, you know, we often say that they're the only people are going to come at us with like, but what about Potty and Casty? Well, and first what off, about... there are literally only four titles we could work with here. No, but then they start, they, they come up with quotes that they work, you know, the title into or they, they turn a characters. They've got all kinds of stuff they lob at us. Pod Lane may cast. Exactly. Right. They cram it into the director's name. Look, I, I agree with you. I think the Pod Break cast that's what we're doing <laughs> i already it's forgot it's so clean it sticks so in your head clean. it's mr clean that is the the baldest uh miniseries title ever i call it the baldest one because it's mr mm-hmm. clean now can i say something yeah david there is in fact a third person on this podcast true and this is a guestless episode so we can take the time to introduce him a thing that has not been retired but has been benched just because our episodes are already long, and what I'm about to do will take several minutes. So oh. you're going to do it. Oh, oh God, it's going to happen. Okay, Look. you want to do it. All right, okay. David, okay. you and I are hashtag yeah. I'm going to go make like a, like a dinner, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we're the <laughs> That's two our competitive yeah. advantage. We're two friends, <laughs> and we're the two hosts of this show. The third person on mic right now is not a host. No, he's the producer. He's a producer, and and people have called him producer Ben, producer Ben, the Ben Deucer, right. the poet laureate, the meat lover, the tiebreaker, the fart detective, our finest film critic, the peeper, birthday Benny, hello Fennel, not Professor Crispy. He is not Professor Crispy. No, he's Crispy. not. He no, is the not. fuck master. He is dirt bike Benny. He is white hot Benny. He is soaking wet Benny. He is the Haas. He is Mr. Positive. He's Mr. Hositive. He's a close mm. personal friend of Dan Lewis, the voice True. of reason, Santa Haas, the commish, and of course... As recently gifted to him by our friend Io Adebri, he is wishful Ben. Yeah, uh, he, yeah. I don't remember what the context of that was. What was I don't the context either. of that? I don't wishful either. Ben. Our mythology is impossible to keep track of at this point. I but here, about Santa Haas. That's an old one. The voice of reason is when Sonia called you the voice of reason. I remember yes. that one. Yes. Oof, uh, boy. I don't remember that. Was the booker on that list? Yeah. No, the booker wasn't on the list. That's an important one. I feel like you do most of the booking these days. So maybe, That's true. Right? Yeah. I suppose yeah. I'm more the you booker. You like to get it on the book. But there's another wrinkle we haven't discussed here. What's that? He does have a tendency to graduate to certain titles at the end of each miniseries. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, for example, if I could just list a few, and by a few I mean all, producer Ben Kenobi, <laughs> Kylo Ben, Ben Knight Shyamalan, Ben Sate, say Benything dot dot dot, Ailey Ben's with the dollar sign, War Haas, Perdue Bane, Ben 19 the Fennel Maker, Robo Haas, Benglish, Mr. Ben Credible, Eat Drink Ben Hosley, Beetle Vape Juice, The Hosley Day, Public Benemies, Hosica of the Ditch of the Jersey, Stop Making Bens, Haas Pig in the City, Ben Hosley Met Sally dot dot dot, and The Secret Life of Ben's. Now I bring now, this up because we're, we're a couple short. We're two behind. Because so yeah. we didn't do a Zemeckis one, and we didn't do a uh, Musker and Clements. Yes. 
I now I feel like so those have to be mauled. I mean, do you have any off the top of your head, Griffin? I don't. I just want to set this up. Maybe that's a goal by the end of this episode. Sometimes the Reddit will come up with a nickname and I'll notice it and I'll be like, ha, you know, uh, but uh, uh, then I don't remember it. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of scanning the Reddit now. Is it welcome? Maybe welcome to Ben Ben? Mark, welcome to Mar Ben was definitely <laughs> one of them. But, but welcome oh to Ben Ben God. is almost funnier. Um, I should mention, by the way, we're talking about Ben Hosley is the, is the person Hi. in question. Hello. Mm-hmm. Yes, the I'm close here personal as well. friend of Dan Lewis. That's your favorite bit is is uh, the close personal friend of uh, it's, Dan it's, Lewis. It's, I mean, it's, of course, it's not a bit. We don't do bits on this sh- show. No. Yeah. Um, Never. I'll say this. I feel like, uh, you know, you started doing that bit years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it stemmed out of uh, you referring to him as uh, Dan. Sure. And we were yeah. uh, joking about how what, what gives you the right to be that familiar with Daniel Day-Lewis. And you said, well, I'm a close personal friend. Uh, everything Daniel Day-Lewis has done uh, uh, surrounding his uh, quote unquote retirement from acting makes me think the two of you would actually get along very well. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Get bad tattoos, vape. Right. Yeah. And like Paul Thomas Anderson talks about every time he tried to talk him into doing a movie, he was like, he just wants to sit on the couch and watch like like uh, uh, man versus food and stuff. Sure. Right? No, it's Naked and Afraid. Naked and Afraid, I think, is the one that Daniel Day-Lewis loves. Fair enough. I turned him on to Alone, that show where people well, go see, out into the woods. That's what and, I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. We got a big kick out of the recent season. A guy eats a woodchuck, like, day yeah. three and gets really sick. Of course. Shouldn't have done that. Like, really sick and just shouldn't shits himself. Shouldn't eat no woodchuck. Yeah, well, he was starving, you know, but <laughs> sure. He's like this tough military trained guy. He eats a woodchuck and he's like pooping his pants and they have to fly him out in a helicopter. <laughs> and you and Dan were just oh, slapping we were knees. We we're dying. Because he talks such a strong game. He's like, I'm going to survive 80 days, no problem. And then he's pooping and crying. Oh, God. How long could you do that? I could do that for like one day. I could do it uh, one minute. Uh, <laughs> I, I just remember the other Ben nickname suggestion I really liked. What was that? The Great Mouse Fart Detective. Ooh, oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, oh, it's, it's lock it in. Ben, if you can play some kind of lock sound effect, just like okay. a chunk. Yeah, that's know? okay. <laughs> Oh, my God. You know what I'm thinking about right now, Griffin? What? Uh, just just by some circumstance, 88-year-old Elaine Iva Berlin, a.k.a. Elaine May, finding out about this podcast, learning like how to listen to it or whatever, like you know, loading it up on her, her podcast casts app mm-hmm. and just listening to this first 15 minutes and being like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> uh, I thought they were yeah. talking about my movies or something. Yeah. Uh, he wants to take me out to a pasta dinner and then they spend 18 minutes talking about this guy's nicknames. Who's this horny little twerp talking about how sexy I was? She would break me. In the fucking 60s or whatever. Yeah, I also think, I say this with, with great consideration, I do think she is, of all the directors we've covered, the least likely to ever listen to this show, including the directors who are currently dead. Yeah. I think it would be easier 
to get a non-living filmmaker to listen to this show than Elaine May. I just cannot imagine her even considering wasting her time on this. I just imagine saying the word podcast to her and her going like, oh, no, that's all right. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't need to. I don't that. need that. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I saw her. I, I'll probably talk about this fucking every episode, but I saw her. Uh, they did a screening of Ishtar probably about 10 years ago, and she did a Q&A afterwards at 9 Second Street Y. Uh, and I hadn't seen the movie before. I mostly went because I was like, Ishtar, that's not available on Blu-ray. It wasn't at that point. Uh, it's such a notorious film. And she never does public appearances. I should see this. That's what got me really into her as a filmmaker. I worked backwards from there. Um, but someone asked her uh, uh, what she thought of the Heartbreak Kid remake. And I believe her answer was no. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Yeah. Right. It's No. It's a no. Uh, I respect it. I respect Elaine May. Uh, we have, she has been, I would say, a mold topic for this podcast from the beginning. She's been, yep. been on a couple March Madness brackets, I feel like. I believe she's been on every one. Every single one. That That's probably true. Yeah. So, you know. That's probably true. Here, here we are. That's probably true. Uh, and uh, in last year, or well, maybe even two years ago, you thought mm-hmm. it would be funny if April was May. You, that's what you told me. That's not true. That's not true. I thought it would be hilarious. If April was May, because Elaine right. May has made four films, mm-hmm. and the month of April has four weeks, mm-hmm. like most months. Clean. So wouldn't it be funny if April was May? Not May. Not if May was May. Too easy. Too obvious. So we have structured a lot around the fact that we want April to be May. Absolutely. People need to understand we always take one week off every year. We have we go dark the week between Christmas and New Year's. And we didn't do that this year solely so that April could be May. It was the only way for the schedule to fit. There were two things that were paramount. We had to talk the walk before 2020 was over. Correct. And April had to be May. Correct. And those two things happened and we just had to record an ad-less episode, which was no big deal. But still, it was funny that we did that. I I am looking at the spreadsheet here. Somehow we lost $20 million on Talking the Walk 2020. (laughs) Shit, fuck. I shouldn't have made the budget for that episode $20 million. That was my mistake. Right. We shouldn't, because most episodes of this show cost $100. We probably shouldn't have then made one episode cost $20 million and also have it be the only episode without ads in three years? Well, because JD interviewed that guy, and so I, he said he wanted to take a jumbo jet that only he was in to, to talk to him. And right, and let's I make said, something clear. Right. JD is uh, uh, absolutely following uh, health protocols. He did not interview that guy in the same room. He took a jumbo jet to a hotel room where he Zoomed with that guy. <laughs> Exactly. But this hotel room, it was one of those ones where it has a bathtub in a giant champagne glass. Like, yes. it was a very fancy hotel room that he stayed in alone. Yeah. Uh, J- JD also demanded that uh, even though he was only staying in one room, that the hotel had to uh, rent out to him every room for sound right, just purposes. To be, he, just to be, and, and to be safe. Yes. Uh, I, 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 I mean... If we were joking two minutes ago about Elaine May uh, uh, not knowing how to process the bullshit that we've been talking about, uh, I I don't even know how to describe what she would be doing at this point. It's something beyond unsubscribing. You know, it's 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 she she would temporal pincer movement this show. She would sue us. Let's be clear. She, she would, would she us. would launch she would a lawsuit us. against us, and she'd be right to do so. Now, yes. he, here's the thing: I realized 
you know, Elaine May, I, I would argue, was uh, the most famous and successful person before starting her film directing career that we've ever covered on this show. The only person mm. who comes close is Nora Ephron. And I go, huh, that's kind of interesting that two of the only four, five female directors we've covered are the ones who had a big notable career before um, actually making a film. Yeah. I don't think that is coincidental. I think especially because you look at Nora Ephron starting in the 80s and 90s, Elaine May is starting in the 70s. Uh, it's still a very uh, unfair, sexist industry that does not give women enough chances uh, behind the camera. But especially in earlier decades, if you are going to convince a studio to let you direct a film as a woman, you need to have bonafides right you look at how overqualified elaine may was by the time she made her first film and it is wild uh, honestly the third person is probably nancy myers and that she was already an oscar nominated yeah. screenwriter like uh, you know if you think because like when we talk about like you know james cameron or or christopher nolan saw like those guys did not toil making like ch- cheap ass movies like you know no. they didn't just emerge out of nowhere but they were not you know, famed raconteurs, essentially, you know, who then were like, and I want to make a little movie. And they were like, well, all right, if you insist, you know. Right. Like, not only were they not public figures, but I feel like very few, if any of the directors we've covered, even worked as screenwriters for other filmmakers before they started making their own films. Most of the people we covered don't have that trajectory. As you said, that's what uh, Nancy Myers did. She had Oscar nominations under her belt, and Elaine May and uh, Nor Ephron were like had to establish themselves as two of the greatest wits in America in order to get to direct films. Um, yeah, absolutely. But but they they were so culturally seismic. I mean, we should we should get in a little bit to uh, Elaine May's backstory. Yes, born in Pen- Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, the great the great city of brotherly love. She feels like such a fundamentally New York person to me. But I, I, I believe she lived all over because her parents were in like the traveling Yiddish theater scene, right? Yes. Like so they, she was just everywhere. Right. She's sort of got that like the Buster Keaton childhood where she was always uh taught to be in show business from her earliest ages, you know? She was being taught routines. She was understanding how to play in front of a crowd, uh, probably at the same time that she was learning how to walk and talk. Right. Because, right. um, see, yeah, so they toured the country. Her father dies when she's 11. They move to Los Angeles. She drops out of high school when she's 14 years old. She marries uh, a toy inventor when she's 16 years old and has a child with him when she's 17. She has Jeannie Berlin, uh, who goes on to be an actress herself. She's with that guy for years. They, they were married yes. for like 12 years, I think. Uh, and then she marries another guy. From that, it's like a very brief marriage. But somewhere in there, in the, in the, uh, in the, well, no, it's in the 50s, actually, she moves to Chicago. And that's where she's, you know, she's auditing classes, sure, but what she, you know, starts to get interested in is, uh, is you know, improv, is is improv right. comedy with uh, skinny old Mike Nichols. You know, I mean, we, Ang Lee had a somewhat similar thing where he had a family and multiple children before he even started to get into film. But here she is. She's a woman. She's in her, her 20s, but she's already been married for a decade and has a child 
uh, about 10 years old by the time she even starts to, you know, get back into acting in a serious way. Right. Joins the Compass Players. That that was well, her formed. big thing. Yes. I mean, that was, Basically right? She formed. was one of the yes. founding members. Yes. She's a, char- a charter member. Yes. Yes. Uh, and the Compass Players are one of those groups that are just sort of like, uh, I mean, I know her initial group, obviously Mike Nichols was in it. Shelley Berman was in it, who was kind of the major precursor to uh, Bob Newhart. He did these albums inside Shelley Berman, outside Shelley Berman, where he was the original kind of like phone call comedian. He's Larry David's dad. He's, that's, He's Larry that's David's how you dad. might know him, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. But I, I just want to make it clear because I feel like he doesn't get enough respect. I love Shelley no, Berman. Legendary, yes. Yeah, absolutely. His whole thing was the thing that Bob Newhart later really popularized, which is your, your routine is, one person conversations, right? What are you saying? Oh, it's my thing. You know, like, right. Yes. Right. He'd h- literally hold a phone up on stage. Um, but also, uh, what's his name? Uh, Sills. Uh, Paul Sills was part of uh-huh. the original group who later goes on to found the second city. But also, you know, who else was in there? Uh, uh was a company member, uh, Del Close. You heard of this Del guy? Close? Truth in comedy. Yes. But I'm saying Del Close comes later. Ed Asner comes a little bit later. Alan Alda comes a little bit later. Am I wrong about that? I think Close is with it. Because Close and May and Nichols, like, and um, what's his name? Um, Theodore Flicker. They're the ones who, like, they, they, like, codify, like, the principles of improv and stuff. You know what I mean? Like, they're the ones who start to write things down on mm-hmm. on all that. And then Nichols and May are, like, we're out of here. We're going to New York. And Del Close is, like, I'm staying in Chicago forever. Truth and comedy. Well, yeah. I mean, they were the performers, and like Dell was the guy who was gonna just go on to teach, which like is kind of a thing that happens, like in just the arts in general. Did he ever make a Harold team though? Uh, he formed Harold teams. <laughs> Did he ever make one though? <laughs> like, he, well, I mean, know? David, that's why we got to really investigate your language here. He made a Harold team, but he never made he Harold Knight. If that makes sense. That's, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Yeah. He never made a Harold let's, Knight. Let's just say, I mean, obviously, also uh, Ed Asner, Alan Alder, Jane Alexander, sure. Valerie Harper, Barbara Harris, Linda Lavin, Jerry Stiller. I mean, a lot of big people came out of Compass Players, but also, uh, you know, all these major schools of modern improv come out of there. And they really kind of revolutionized uh, American uh, uh, comedic improvisation as an art form. Uh, if you want to lay blame uh, you can also place it at their feet yep. for that's, what that's it's what turned I, into. That's what I'm trying to build here. Right. I'm like, is, is Elaine May responsible for our biggest national catastrophe? No, right. I'm kidding. Who? Uh, come on. It's, it's but fun. wouldn't you say, wouldn't you say, though, that it started more as it's an art form, but it, the idea was to to showcase it live, but then to 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 take what you created out of that and make sketches yes, right. or to like re, re, like develop a routine out right. of it. Right. It was like, a little less of the right of the like no, it's just whatever happens that night and that's for everyone to remember and like it never happens again and it's magic we're creating and it's you know that's part of the magic that you'll never do well, it again. Yes. And that was uh you know the cornerstone of uh Second City and what it was founded to do. I mean the Second City main stage still is, you know, if you go see a Second City, I I would I was going to say now, but uh, you obviously can't but uh, a Second City main stage show has the main stage company doing new sketches that they've written, which they've derived from improv, but also doing classics. And if you went to go see a main stage show whenever they reopen, they might be doing a Nichols and May sketch, you know, 
or yep. like a Bob Odenkirk, Chris Farley sketch, or a Sedaris Colbert sketch. It, it's the they whole. They just thing. have an archive of of sketches written by like some of the most prolific comedians of all time, right. going back like like decades and decades. It's really incredible. Yeah, like the um the like uh, uh, down by the river, the, Matt uh, Foley in a van. That that was like Bob Odenkirk wrote that yeah. Second City, and they put it up like ah, just shit like that makes me just yeah, it's so cool. You, you know that 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 shit's so funny. <laughs> I know that's the least yeah. interesting thought in the world, <laughs> but it's so fucking funny. I know it's a bad motivational speaker. <laughs> he lives but, in his a van his down weird by the thing river. is is he threatens you with ending up living in a van down by a river, which he is doing. But also that's so that sketch is just like diamond cut. That sketch is just it has zero fat. Every element of it is funny, and it only makes sense when you look at how sloppy SNL often is, even when they're good, that that was a sketch that was performed for like years you know was just refined and refined refined right and then even still i know on the day farley did a bunch of shit that he had never done before which is why no one can stop laughing in that sketch that's a perfect right. sketch that's a perfect sketch it's a perfect sketch it really and, is. And, and, but yeah and then it's partly right it's a perfect sketch because it's diamond cut yeah. like you say but also Right, he like does the weird thing with the glasses, and Spade loses it because he's like, "I didn't know you were gonna do uh, the belt adjusting uh, thing." Yeah, and it's also yes, just for yeah. me one of the greatest reversals in sketch comedy is, "What do you want to do when you grow up? I want to live in a van down by the river." Well, you have plenty of time for living in a van down by the river when you're living in a van down by the river. <laughs> <laughs> so good. But Boy. but yes, I mean, Nichols and May are a direct uh, uh, sort of predecessor to all of this. I mean, really so much of what we consider American sketch comedy today. You know, this transition from uh, things that were more indebted to the Yiddish theater, I mean, sort of borscht belty vaudeville, sort of more gag-based things and more character-based, you know, game-based scenes that had dramatic dramatic arcs, even though they were sketches, you know, all that sort of stuff comes out of Nichols and May. And obviously so much of it was uh, the the basis and improv was to try to get a conversational feel, to try to not have to reverse engineer a sketch from a big joke, you know, so that you can actually make something that is behavioral and well-observed and the humor comes out of that. Were you watching some of these sketches, Griff? I was. A lot of them are hard to find. They did a lot of uh, commercials, which are incredible, both live action commercials and animated commercials. And the animated ones are fascinating because they're like the now modern trend of people taking podcasts and animating them. Mm, yes. Right, people have right. done that for us and they do it for other show. Ricky Gervais obviously made an entire show out of it. Uh, let me just double check this. The funniest TV show ever made and definitely not the most lazy. Um, I, I I did like that podcast when I was a teen. Of course. No, your radio I, I show. love the podcast. It was a radio, radio show. Yeah, yeah, that is uh, the laziest TV show of all time. It's just, <laughs> it it's just poorly lazy. done. It's just poorly done. <laughs> it was a little poorly done. I saw someone do a fan animation of Doughboys uh, like a it week was, ago like, online. Arguably better. Right? Infinitely yeah. better. So much better. They're great, you know, independent animators out there who are using podcasts as inspiration, doing great work. And these uh, Nichols and May commercials are like that. They have like cool, limited UPA style animation, and they're able to sort of transform these voices of characters they do. But it also feels like, uh, you know, I, my chronology might be off here, but the two are happening around the same time. Nichols and May and Jim Henson 
are both sort of weird artists who are using commercials and turning them into an artistic medium to a certain mm. degree, right? right? It's like the the commercial agencies want to use the cachet of these hip artists to actually make things that are genuinely funny or have artistic integrity and aren't just showcasing a product. And they find a way to strike a balance of doing something they can actually be proud of and just how can we give the bare minimum of attention to whatever beer or cigarettes or coffee that we're selling, you know? And if you look at those Nichols and May commercials, the Henson commercials, they're still so funny and you can't imagine anyone making them today. Um, they they would do appearances on late night shows, uh, but their big thing obviously was they spun off from the Compass players. They felt like the team within the Compass players at large that really had the magic chemistry. And Nichols talks about how Elaine May was just right there from day one. When he joined, uh, you know, when he saw them perform and asked if he could join, she was clearly the superstar. And he joined and was not good. That they, You know, he kept on going to Sills and going, I'm bad, you should cut me. And Sills would go, you're going to get good eventually. Someday you'll get good. And he was like, it took maybe a year until they were like, oh, my God, Mike, you played a character. You figured out how to do a character. But it was very much an evolution to him finding that he was the perfect missing piece to everything Elaine May did. And a lot of it was uh, class commentary, you know. Uh, you know, she comes from the Yiddish theater. He's, uh, you know, an immigrant. He lives, uh, leaves, uh, you know, Nazi-occupied Germany. Uh, you know, gets out barely with his family and uh, comes to the states. And he had been this sort of very arrogant, uh, you know, uh, smart alecky uh, dude who had coasted through life. And Compass Players, he said, was the first time that he actually like wanted to work hard. He wanted to get better at something. So they really take off. They're sort of the breakout of those shows in Chicago. They go, we should go to New York. We should make it. They go see agents. They get rep by a big New York talent agent who I forget the name, but who represent a lot of the big club comedians at the time. And they're doing like the Village Vanguard and Cafe Wa and whatever. And eventually it leads to, I think Arthur Penn is the one who sees them, uh, who at that point is still mostly a, a theater director and actor studio guy. And he says, we should take this to Broadway. Uh, yeah, it's Jack Rollins is the guy who's their, their manager, right? You know, Correct. who's later Woody Allen's manager. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, and but right, at they that point, the I think they, they, yeah, they're they're doing TV appearances, they're doing commercials, but they do the Broadway show, and it's humongous, sellout show. You can listen to some of it, you know, on Spotify or what have you. With like, uh, it's called yeah. an evening with Mike Nichols and Elaine May. That's like the album they put out that was like a best selling album. They have right. their three albums, which are immaculate each one's 30 minutes long can't recommend it enough yeah they're very very funny that's what i've been listening to uh what's uh, examine doctors that's another one of them yeah. and uh and then uh, music improvisations to make or i mean there's a few yeah, yeah. oh uh, in retrospect is it look there's a very retrospect's a compilation no, no yeah. it's improvisations it's, it's, to music right is the uh, right the it's improvisations right. to music examine doctors and uh, uh an a night with like, an, an evening just an yeah. evening just an evening the adultery is my favorite scene. Yes. Or sketch or whatever. From the, like, that one, once they get to the French, it's just like, it's like every line is like a laugh line. Like, it's so fucking good. But what's so fascinating about watching them or listening to them, and I found, let me double check what this thing is called. Uh, I think it's called Nichols and May Take Two. 
but it's like a documentary, I want to say, from the 90s where they interview a bunch of uh, people who were influenced by them, like Robin Williams and Steve Martin. Um, yes, it's called Nichols and Mate Take Two. It's, it's about a, right. it's another an American hour Masters. long. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, um, and they interview all these people who are inspired by them and people who worked with them, but also they include a lot of sketches on video full length. And it is so fascinating watching them. They don't really have traditional setup punchlines like a lot of sketches do. They don't have the same sort of obvious game playing that a lot of sketches do. So much of the comedy just comes from how well observed it is. That They are heightenings of types of people and behaviors that we all know that people had never crystallized before that point. And even still, 60, 70 years later, they still feel like, oh my God, I can't believe how well they're capturing this thing. And she, right, it was her, right, she's playing like, uh, professionals versus playing like you know harridans or housewives or battle axes or like whatever. She's the always very like, high yeah. status. Yes, right. she's right. the very self possessed. Yes, right. Uh, there's an amazing sketch with the two of them as teenagers in a car. Uh, sort of Nichols trying to lose his virginity. Uh, there's a, a sketch that is uh, uh, May haranguing Nichols as her son for not calling her enough, and he's literally a rocket scientist who is working <laughs> on the first NASA mission. And she's just guilt-tripping him about everything. And I think it's Rollins says, it is astonishing because I know, I know firsthand how much that was based on her mother, and yet you watch it, and it is everyone's mother. And it truly is. There's something primal that she taps into, and that was so much of their comedy, of just like, the sketch opens up, and once the audience recognizes, oh, these are two nervous kids who are debating whether or not to have sex in a car, they start laughing. They just start laughing, and the laughs come from either the situation is so funny that everything happens and is so funny, or everything they say is just so spot on. Have you seen the sketch? I think they did it literally on the Emmys, where she comes out as a presenter, dead serious, they introduce her as like, you know, and she's one half of one of America's hottest comedy teams, Elaine May. And then she okay. comes out like she's presenting an award and the award is for excellence in mediocrity. She goes like, right. we've spent so much of tonight talking about those who are great at their craft. But what if the other people? And she's got her like chin up in the air and she's got her can I makeup and her sleek black dress and everything. She's playing it totally straight. And so they announced they're giving the award to the most mediocre man in the entertainment industry. And then Nichols is that guy planted in the audience and he comes <laughs> up and gives an acceptance speech. And they just do it in the middle of the award show. And they play it to totally straight. It's unbelievable. And there's a specificity to just how Nichols plays the body language of sneaking through the aisle asking people to stand up so he can go accept the award the sort of arrogance yeah it's the 1959 emmys if you want to google it guys it's on it's youtube amazing. it's very funny richard nixon presents right before them it's like nixon giving a very straight like this is what makes america great and then nixon is just wonderful isn't it right and they're making fun of like award shows being back patty in 1959 hey they were yeah you know who's funny, fucking, though, that, that Bob Hope. Sorry, go on. Hey, Bob Hope is kind of funny. I like the golf club thing. But he's pretty funny, Which actually. I learned about on Simpsons. <laughs> I like when he sings Thanks for the Memories. That always makes me laugh. That's such a good yeah. bit. Yeah. They performed at Kennedy's birthday, yeah. which is where Marilyn Monroe did the famous Happy Birthday, Mr. Right. President. It's just crazy like that they were they have like 
they've saw that yeah. they're so part of culture. They influence comedy in this massive way. It's like, and then the movies they made, like they're they're really. Um, Man, we're gonna really nerd. This out. is the this thing, is, and yeah. and like obviously, the three of us were not alive for this. But when you dig into it, it is just actually hard to process how massive they were, how much they changed the temperature of comedy, and how comedians were perceived. But also how how much they were part of like the cultural elite that they were at the center of the national discourse in that way and that everything they started sort of like bleeds out into everything else you know both from the people who are influenced by their routines and the work that they then continue to do in other forms okay but do you know what my favorite bob hope oscar line is though because everyone uh, knows Welcome to the Academy Awards, or as it's known in my house, Passover, right? That's, I was it's a say, funny that's line. Because he didn't win the awards, is the joke right. that passed him but over. He, <laughs> here was my favorite. <laughs> We're all here to celebrate Oscar, or as he's known in my house, the fugitive. That's pretty funny. It's pretty good. Look, the thing about Nichols and May is... They're they're like I mean how many people went out on top like right like obviously it's like Seinfeld they ended the show when they were number one like what what are the yeah. examples like that right where it's like they Andrew based, Dice Clay Andrew Dice Clay yeah the Dice Man obviously right but like they can do this for years not only could they have done it for years but they could have become like Martin and Lewis right I right. mean they could have get the movie deals get the right they could have transferred right. it to different mediums they could have done a lot of different things all and true. instead they totally split up which was very much her choice Nichols she was kind basically of was yeah she was like we're not gonna be able to keep this fresh it's time to end it and, and she was I'm tired of it I mean she felt impatient yeah yeah right exactly and Nichols was like it, it was cataclysmic is, is how he puts it like he he just he he didn't know what to do with himself Right. And, you know, and we joke about this, but, you know, we're going to joke about this, but right. And he was like, what should I do? I guess I'll just be a generationally successful filmmaker. I guess that's what I have to do with myself. Oh, oh no. Right. I mean, he's the only person to win an EGOT and a Peabody, I think. Is that right? Wow. Right. A P-got? He won the, the Peagot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. He, well, he got a whole. Yeah, he did. Good for him. Good for you, Nichols. Wow. Cause, cause the Grammys for Nichols and May, yeah, right. The Grammy is always the one that gets you because you you essentially have to be someone who's musically inclined, or else you have to win through a comedy album or through uh, like maybe a, a book a on tape, word, right. a book on tape. Yeah. But that's so much harder to do. I I I think I've said this before, but what I'm striving for in my career is an EGOT. Okay, go ahead. So that there's two G's in there, right? So it's uh, Emmy. Golden Globe Oscar time. Uh, I feel sure, like, sure, right, sure, that way right. I don't ever have to get into a recording studio again. Right. Um, yeah, well, Mike Nichols has one Oscar, one Grammy, four Emmys, nine Tonys. Cool. Pretty impressive amount of Tonys, including seven for directing. It's not like he got a bunch of producing Tonys. He, you know, doesn't. Anyway. And and Elaine May has a, has a gin and tonic, right? She has a Grammy and a Tony. <laughs> right, yes. Uh, she never won an Oscar, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, she nominated. obviously won a Grammy. Uh, she certainly won a Tony for the Waverly Gallery. Had she won before then? I don't know. Maybe. I believe she was the oldest winner ever. I think that's right. Or maybe second old. She was a very. Uh... Did you see the Waverly Gallery when it was I on Broadway? Did. This was only last year. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm fucking all about Kenny Lonergan. I never miss a Lonergan production. He's my favorite playwright. Uh, and I love Elaine May. She was unbelievable in that show. Uh, I mean, it was one of those that, yes, it did not seem like some kindly career award when she won no. that. It was just, everyone was just like, oh, well, yeah, she's winning that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's yeah. just uh, lock stock. Um, so Elaine Mason, but this is the, no, this is the thing, right? Nichols, she she breaks it off with Nichols uh, professionally. Um, she moves to theater first, Griffin. Adaptation yes. is her best known work. I, am I right in remembering you like... We're in a production of that or something, like a high school. Am I making no. this up? Who? What? Why are we talking about this? I don't know. I saw her. They did that. They did that show. Uh, maybe about ten years ago now. That was called like Relatively Speaking or something. Yeah, the the, the one act plays the three one acts, and it was Woody Allen, her, and Joel Cohen, and it was uh, Ethan Cohen. Ethan Cohen. I'm sorry. Uh, and hers was the only one that really stood on its own, but it was pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. It was called George's Dead was her yes. one. And it was with Marlo Thomas, who was uh, unreal in it. But uh, yeah. yes, she went to theater pretty quickly, I think, because it was easier to uh, uh, sort of throw her weight in theater, be given control, yeah. and also that words are more respected there. She had to put up less of a fight. Yeah. But it's it's basically 10 years of that. 10 years yeah. of theater before she's moving to movies with A New Leaf, the film we're here to discuss today, right. 1971's A New Leaf. She has that, that short-lived marriage in the middle where she's married for two years, which happens right around the time that Sheldon Nichols and May Honig. break up. Right. And then that marriage ends. She immediately remarries with the man she's with until his death in the 80s. David Rubenfine, who she's with through the early 80s, he dies. And then in late in life, she was uh, her like companion was Stanley Donan, director of Singing in the Rain. Yeah. And- she was with Donan for like the last 30 years. Yeah. He just died this year, last he year. He just died. And he said, yeah. I tried, you know, I asked her to marry me a billion times, but you know, no more, no more weddings for her, but singing in the rain, a great movie. Yeah. That one's good. It's got two things. I love. Okay. Singing in, and in water. <laughs> it's true. It's a wet sing along. That it's one. Wet as hell. At this point, we've already done our March Madness bracket. We will, people will know That's who has point. won. I, I really wanted to put Stanley Donan in my, my eight, but it, it, he is just, it's hard to shrink down. Let me take a look at that. That's interesting. I've never thought about that. I mean, I, I'd love to do it. I thought about it a lot because I, I, I love a lot of the weird Donnans. Like the, oh, the sure. Stanley Donnan Little Prince, I love. Yeah, you really love the Little Prince. It I, is a I lot. What's Prince. that about? It's about uh, uh, un petit prince, a little boy. Yeah, a fancy little boy who um, lives on the uh, planets, lives on the moon. But I love charade, obviously. Um, Yeah, I love. I mean, uh, singing the rain's pretty uh, undeniable. I I, I love on the town. I think on the town fucks. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, right? I mean, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is sort of one of the weirdest movies ever made. Very strange, but gorgeous to look at. The Pajama Game is good. I haven't seen a lot of these. You know, he's got like twenty five movies. I know there are a couple. That's why I didn't put him on. It's the only reason I just couldn't figure out any way to shrink it down. He Uh, he works for us though because he like made Saturn Three. Like you know, there's stuff in there where you're like, oh, the late ones are weird. Like that's the yeah. thing. Little Prince is him like trying to figure out how to make an old timey musical in New Hollywood. A movie right. movie is very bizarre. Movie movies like the original Grindhouse, where it's two short films that mm-hmm. are like pastiches of the thirties. I think it's three. I think it's there's like a thirties boxing film, a World Double War Bell. One drama, and like a musical. Right. There's there's a fake trailer. 
That's right, what it is. Okay. It's a musical right, boxing yeah. drama and a fake trailer in between. Uh, it's wild. Uh, bedazzled. I mean, it's a great career. Anyway. Yeah, uh, you can talk about Peter Cook. I mean, look, we'll, we'll do it. We'll just have, we're just going to have to do it. Yeah, we'll do it at some point. Um, Funny yes. face. That's a big, I mean, this is a lot. Anyway, sorry, go on. She makes this movie. She signs the deal to do a new leaf uh, in 1968. Uh, and what year is Virginia Woolf? 67? 66, I think. 66? I can look it up. Who's afraid of Virginia? 66. 1966. Okay. Mike Nichols. Now, pe- pe- I've seen people sometimes complain that we uh, ascribe too much uh, sort of strategic thought to movements in Hollywood and say like, well, this was successful, so everyone was doing this. And uh, they say like, well, it's not that deliberate. It's just... Hollywood's a reactive business. They chase trends. And that is what we're trying to say, right? People follow trends or they get scared off of things because of failures. And I do think to some degree, Elaine May had retreated, right? She was still doing work. But Mm -hmm. across this decade after they break up, Nichols becomes like the most beloved, adored, awarded theater director before he even gets to make a film. That's true. But then, right. But then in movies, he's the new hotness. Like, right. Cause who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? This movie is shocking. People are like, I can't believe they made a movie out of that play because it's right. so, you know, right. You know, and then the graduate is like, it's a year later and it's, it's a revolution. It's like, Oh my God, no one ever made a movie about a young person feeling bad before. It's one of the most successful movies of all time. It's generation defining and he wins the Oscar for best director. So I just imagine yep. at that point, Hollywood is clamoring and going like, if Nichols worked this well as a director, we should let May direct something now. It might be part of it. I mean, or maybe she was interested by the fact that he was, I have no, I don't know what the arc of it. Is. I don't know why she finally takes the move to Hollywood. I don't, I know that obviously she's, uh, basing this on this story, The Green Heart, which she reads in like an Alfred Hitchcock mystery magazine, mm-hmm. uh, like the, you know, and so she like writes a script and submits it to Paramount or what you know, right? Like you know, she's like, here's what I want to do, but I don't know, right? If they're like, Elaine, it's time, you gotta, you know, you gotta follow in Mike's footsteps, or if, I, I don't know, you tell me. I don't know. I will say I, I have the uh, uh, Olive Film Special Edition Blu-ray of A New Leaf, which is really good. It's a Same. beautiful Very good. transfer. And I tried listening to it with the commentary. And the problem is commentary is good, but it's very academic. And I got I just watching it with the commentary on. I was longing to hear the movie. Just, this is this is I have this problem with commentaries all the time. Right. I was like, I can't turn this off. Often I do. And I was trying to you know, cut out the time to watch it two times. But I just like, you know, I'd seen the film pretty recently. So I was like, well, I've seen it without commentary recently. I could do it. But I just was so I couldn't resist just watching the movie itself again. Even if you've just watched the movies, sometimes there's just like, that's just how it like, even if you just like, well, but this is a funny moment. I want it like, you know, like and then I anyway, I agree with you. I really yeah. struggle with commentaries for that exact reason. I didn't when I was younger, but I don't know. Maybe it's just there's a lot of movies to watch. It's also funny to think, Griffin, that at this point, Mike Nichols is already on the rebound as a director because he yes. comes out of the gate so hot with those first two movies. Then he tackles Catch-22 for his third movie. I mean, you know, this sprawling major American work, right? Where it's like, oh, shit, like he's shooting for the stars and that thing's a flop. 
And then, but in 1971, same year as this, he's doing Carnal Knowledge, which is kind of his like his rebound. Okay, Get right. Back I'm stripping to, it right. back. Right. We're 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 just we're getting shocking and intimate again, and it's all performance. And yeah, like he's you know he I, we'll do him on the show one day because it's a great run. Okay, this is what it's saying, oh, man. Uh, sorry, Ben. What what are you gonna say? Well, it's just you know you rattle off 71, and as somebody who loves music loves the history of music it's just like it's so crazy to me to think about culturally what was going on in theater and music and mm. movies i i i i i almost said unfortunately i mean i i it's not unfortunate i just i really think that that was like maybe the best time for for art or one of the best times or something do you know what i mean do you guys uh, this disagree? is this is my favorite time for movies like uh, the early ben, 70s is my favorite era what they're gonna be making a movie about a multiverse of madness next year i mean yeah. i'm just just trying to point this out to you okay like dr well, strange okay. is returning that's true. No, I agree with you, but I agree with right. you. Ben. Yeah, Ben. Also, I mean, th- this year is going to put on, you know, hopefully, God willing, if theaters have reopened on the biggest screen imaginable, the opportunity to see the biggest, reddest dog you could imagine. <laughs> this guy is no ordinary <laughs> sized dog, and I need you to understand. No, that. no. Well, and I love him for that. <laughs> and he has the name of your favorite movie character too. So that, that's that's he's got that going for him. Yes. Clifford. That's true. Uh, it's a good uh, Charles Bird miniseries. This is what it says on the Wikipedia, and there's no citation, but this lines up with what I remember hearing. May wrote a new leaf from Richie's short story, but she never intended to act in or direct the picture. I think she just liked the material. She was originally offered $200,000 for the script, but her agent cut a deal with Paramount so that May could direct and he could produce. I think that was unbeknownst to her. She was paid only $50,000 as her agent told her a first-time director could not expect such a large sum of money. Then they told her, Paramount said, if you want to make this, it has to be Mathow. Mathow's the only guy that will give you a green light for. They wanted to be Mathow and Carol Channing. She said Carol Channing would not be able to disappear into the role. It's probably true. I agree, yes. So they, she said, can I pick someone else? And they said, the only other person we would let you put in the role is you. Uh, yes, they, they basically bully her into being yeah. in the movie. Right. There was someone else she thought about. I can, maybe not. I, th- I could have sworn I read some article where she. But yes, they, Carol Channing was their original choice. That was their thing. They said it's Carol Channing or you. You pick. Yeah, exactly. She was like, I can't pick, and they were like, You can pick you. That's that's your choice right. if you wish, you know, to do that. Uh, because right, she wanted it to be Mathau's movie essentially. Yeah, like the, or, you know, she was like the the woman needs to be someone who will actually will not compete for laughs and for like you know kind of presence because the whole point is that this guy is so fucking dominant and she is so sort of you know wallflowery, right? Like I think mm-hmm. that's that's why she's afraid of like a Carol Channing. She's gonna you know Carol Channing's gonna want her laughs. The lady's a pro. Yes. Uh, that having said, I mean, she gets nominated for a Golden Globe Award for this movie. No, you I know, mean, as, that, as having said, she fucking absolutely rock bottoms this movie. It's, just, it's an incredible <laughs> performance. She puts it through a table, like, with God as my witness. She gives but, this movie the people's elbow. Exactly. But I'm just saying, like, but she also knows that, like, it's funnier. She's just, like, in a corner kind of mumbling to herself yeah. sometimes. 
Absolutely. But but her contract is incredibly well set up despite the fact that she's not well paid. She gets final cut, even though that later becomes a point of much contention. And they put a clause in the movie that they cannot fire her without paying out a penalty of two hundred thousand dollars, which is more than they're paying her to act, direct and write at this point. Uh, so they thought about firing her many, many times and they kept well, on saying they, it wasn't worth it yeah uh, yeah i think they they thought about firing her because and this is a pattern for elaine may and god god love her for it the movie went like way over schedule and way over budget and it took forever yeah. to edit like that she's yeah that's her process clearly yeah. yes. editing took about a year uh it went 40 days over schedule when you think about it only being a five-day work week at most that's quite a bit especially yeah, for and a also, comedy like, what, what do you think the schedule for this movie like was the schedule for this movie 40 days absolutely not i would i would guess it was that. also uh the budget was originally 1.8 million dollars it went up to over four so right, she so she doubled the budget more than yes yeah i mean look the thing the thing is this is the one i would say that she is the most upset about it seems like yeah. in that they truly took the cut away from her and re you know just cut it down but she presented a three-hour cut to them yes and like i'd love to see it to be clear i would yes. love to see a three-hour cut of this movie this movie rules but it also just feels bananas to me. Like, there's no way Paramount's putting out a three-hour comedy about a guy, no. a rich guy, trying to murder people. Like, that would be insane. Well, do you know, the original cut had multiple murders in it. He succeeded in murdering multiple people. <laughs> they, they had to cut out all the murders because they were like, I don't think this guy's going to be too, too likable by the end of the movie. Yes. <laughs> if he's getting away with real murder. There's a good special feature, uh, which, of course, Elaine May is like, I don't care about him being likable. Right. Yes. And God. And again, God love her. She's the queen. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree, Elaine. I'm fucking just saying, coolest. Yes. I understand Paramount may be worrying about the commercial prospects. Yes. Um, uh, there's a special feature on the, the Blu-ray. Uh, uh, a man named Angelo Carrao. Who uh, was an assistant editor on the movie? It was his first job as an editor on a movie, and he talks a little bit about how tortured the process was. And he says that he thought her cut was a lot better. That he does think the the version that came out worked, but they essentially found the way to sort of shave it into just being a quirky comedy. And her movie uh, had a lot more layers to it. It touched on a lot more sociopolitical issues. It had more murder. It was much darker, and it was like you know three hours long. But when he came on, she had already been working on it for months. Uh, they had fired an editor. Uh, they were making her do reshoots. They fundamentally, mm. I mean, apparently that the entire process of filming, looking at the dailies, they were like, this is not how a comedy works. They were incredibly disheartened with all the footage they were seeing. And I think it is because uh, these scenes really stack up on top of each other. If you look at any one isolated scene from this movie, it does not feel like a comedy scene in and of itself. It, it doesn't have the laughs like no. that they might expect. I would I imagine that's what they were fretting about, right? Like it just yes. doesn't have that sort of punchy style that it feels like it should have given 
the outsized nature of the plot, like given the the character Mathau is playing, right? Like right. you're like, okay, these are weird people. Where are the punchlines? But it also functions like the Nichols and May sketches, where it's like, well, at, in the best scenes, every single line is a laugh line, even though none of them are technically jokes. Griffin, do you like this movie? Do you think it's I good? I think this movie's really good. Yeah. I had never, this is the one I'd never seen before, and it's just so, it's so fucking good. It, blew, it just blew my mind. Yeah. It was the one I'd seen last. I saw it at Film Forum like a year or two ago. Um, it's really good. And it's so good that it's hard for me to imagine what the alternate version would be like. That's the thing. I'm like, this thing's great. You're telling me you don't like this thing? Like, I know. come on. <sighs> Matho apparently greatly preferred this version and fought for it. There are a lot of people. I mean, I was just even looking like Ebert named it one of his best films of the year. But his review is largely talking about the fact that Elaine May disowned the cut. So it's like this was very much a movie that I think had... A, a Margaret-esque reputation where it landed with people being like, this thing is troubled. You know, it was a relative hit. It was well-reviewed. It uh, got awards nominations. Uh, it did. It got, right, as you said, it got, I think, three Globe nominations, right, for picture, actor, actress? Yeah. No, just two, picture and actress. Matthew snubbed. And it got a Writer's Guild? I think she got a Writer's Guild nomination. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, let's see. And, uh, uh, yes, it did. And, and like... You know, so, okay, it doesn't become an Oscar player. It was released in March of 1971. Like, it's not being positioned as an Oscar player. But um, but it was, and it, it, I think it basically made its budget back. Like, it was no flop, and it was pretty well liked. And the the only problem is that, right, it was this tortured creative process which is just sort of the norm for her. Right. And uh, May tried to get her name taken off the movie as a director, and she also unsuccessfully sued Paramount to stop it from being released. And this is a threat, right? Like, obviously, when you talk about Lane May only having four films, it, uh, it, you know, you cannot avoid how differently men and women are treated in the industry as directors, and that she was pegged with a difficult reputation. But also... Elaine May is a badass who doesn't give a shit. And to her credit, as an artist, she seemingly put no attention or energy towards playing the game. I do think that in some ways hurt her career. Uh, you know. Right. But also that's why she's the best. She doesn't mince words. She doesn't yeah. suffer fools. And I watched uh the um uh, Nichols American Master that she directed and Nichols tells two stories that I'll, I'll share quickly that are really telling because they kind of explain not only what makes Nichols a good director but what made him such a successful director and they're things you can never imagine Elaine May doing. One is he was signed on to do Virginia Woolf. He was adamant that it should be black and white. They were like weeks away from starting production. They had the sets built. They had the costumes picked. They had the actors. They'd done makeup tests all for black and white, right? And the studio head, whoever was at the time, calls him in and goes, and by the way, the picture needs to be in color. And Nichols goes, what are you talking about? And he said, I talked to the guys in New York and the guys in New York all think it needs to be in color. And Nichols, as the sort of smart ass who had always been this sort of like, uh, you know, little Lord Fauntleroy, like sort of trekking through life with his superior intelligence, all these stories about him sort of like sliding his way through college and shit, uh, said like, who, who is New York? What are you talking about? What is New York? And the guy said, it's just not an option either – the picture's in black and white or it doesn't happen. And Nichols' response very calmly is he goes, look, I like my apartment. I like staying at home. 
I would be very happy to not make this movie. It's <laughs> a good and answer. The, and the guy just sighs and goes, okay, so it's in black and white. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then the other story is they thought the movie was going to get disowned by uh, what what's it called when like the Catholic Church the archdiocese sure, had their yeah, like yeah, right the, like yes commission the, the, of the standards, standards or whatever yes yeah right the the original cancel culture let's say as much as the religious right likes to act like cancel culture is a thing of uh, uh, the the leftist uh, woke mob uh, there were decades of cancel culture that was just the Pope saying this movie is evil. I don't know what you're talking about. All these people in my feed are getting canceled all the time. They're telling me about it. That's how I heard about it. So I That's don't know true. what you're talking about. I mean, That's I true. hear about it from them that they've been canceled and they can't they tell have. me that they've been canceled. And I that's how I know they've been canceled. That's the thing. I cannot turn on my TV without hearing people broadcast nationally telling me that they've been canceled. The point is, they thought they were going to disown the movie and they were going to ban it because of uh, language content. And Yes, good. finish your story. I'm sorry. I have something so cool that I want to tell you. But sure. yes, go ahead. But this is full circle back to what Ben was saying. Nichols said to the head of the studio, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. Let's get the screening with the guys on the board, the archdiocese or whatever. Bring them in, and I'll also invite Jackie O to that screening. And she (laughs) will sit next to me, and after the movie is done, before they have a chance to say anything, she'll turn back to them and say, don't you think it's just wonderful? And Nichols said, and I knew she would do that because she was a good friend. She owed me a favor. And that's exactly what happened. Imagine just Jackie O is your friend. I can't. (laughs) He was so good at playing the game while also like getting what he wanted. He was a finesser, you know? And Elaine May is someone who, when they wanted to cut down Mikey and Nikki, slept with a loaded gun under a pillow and stole (laughs) the film reels. So it does like, look. We stand. Right. There, There are many men who have behaved in similar ways and have been canonized for it, right? I'm not saying it's just the fact that she acted in such an aggressive way, but she also just did not give a shit. She thought she should be allowed to make the movie the way she wanted to, and her response if anyone tried to stop her was, fuck you. It wasn't, let me bring Jackie O in, you know? Absolutely. I Here's a couple things about Elaine May that I just learned. I've been mm-hmm. Googling around. One, she was the fourth woman to join the Directors Guild of America. Wow. Total. That's how few female directors there were when she's like coming on board in, in America. Yeah. Europe, slightly different, but only slightly. Uh, two, just something about uh, the, the lawsuit, because this is, an, as, you know, you're talking about her stealing Mikey Nicky reels, but right. But it's also that like Paramount's like, hey, we want to cut the movie. And she's like, I'm taking you to fucking court. Like, you know, yeah. like that's also, that's, that's a big move for this to this to the studio that's going to put out your movie. Yes. Um so apparently here's what happened. The studio heads they they you know they countersue they say she's breaching her contract. We want to show the judge this this cut of the movie, the the movie that exists, the 102 minute cut. The lights go down, they show the movie. The judge laughs the through the entire movie. The lights go up and he says, "It's the funniest thing I've seen in years. You guys oh, win the lawsuit." Wow. Isn't that the best? Even, wow. even though that sounds insane, just yeah. also imagining the judge being like, "This was a great day at court." <laughs> Usually, yeah. I have to deal with all kinds of bullshit. I really like that movie. She was, <sighs> she was the, I believe, the first woman ever to star in, write, and direct her own That's, movie. Sounds totally right. Like it's, who, you know, the, I know right. Ida Lupino, well, obviously. A, the right, Ida Lupino did film. like yeah, two right. out of three. You know, right, right yeah. But no know. one ever did all three. And as you point out, very few people even got to do uh, uh, one. You know, 
got to do the directing side of the equation. Here's the Charles Grodin quote that I love uh, that is in this profile I'm reading. Elaine's the opposite of everyone else in Hollywood. She's always fighting to get as little credit as possible to keep her name off the movie and not to get (laughs) invited to the party. She's happier without any of that. Right. Uh, Like that, that's that's the vibe. And I love it. Grodin must have learned some shit from her. Absolutely. I feel like went on to sort of like carry on that tradition. Yeah. And his whole like Letterman persona feels very much like something out of a Nichols and May sketch. Yes. God, he's I should watch those. This is all this whole miniseries is just making me want to watch. I know it's just hours of YouTube. Right. Exactly. But but this movie, yes, it is one of those things where I struggle to even conceptualize what the longer version would feel like. And it almost feels to me like. I didn't realize the editing process was this torturous. What I sort of assumed uh, through not doing much research previously was that uh, it was something like uh, uh, Days of Heaven, where like he has this unwieldy three-hour cut and they go, it has to be 90 minutes, and he just spends three years editing until it's 90 minutes. You know, I thought it was, oh, it's a labored process, but it wasn't something that involved like lawsuits and shit. Uh, And her trying to get her name removed from the film. Uh, Because it is hard, you know, in a Days of Heaven way, you could go like, well, I can imagine how there's just more of this, how there's more footage. But I can't imagine this movie having any natural shape at three hours. But this assistant editor who did this special feature is like, it was great. And it was this movie that somehow covered all these other subjects. Like it was able to touch on misogyny in the workplace in a way that this cut can't. You know, and there are little allusions to things, they're offhand lines, but it was really layered in. And that it was more of like a murder mystery movie i mean i'd love to see it i assume there's no chance i no just assume, I have to assume right the, that like still yeah. incredibly unclear if the cut exists in any form. right if she has it somewhere maybe there's yeah. one more thing i gotta read you this is Please. so fucking funny this is from the the liner notes to improvisations to music i'm just gonna read this verbatim okay Mike Nichols is not a member of the Actors Studio, which has produced such stars as Marlon Brando, Julie Harris, Ben Gazzara, Eva Marie Saint, Carol Baker, and others too numerous to mention. He's never toured with Mr. Roberts, and he's never appeared on television programs such as the Goodyear Playhouse and the Craft Theater. So that's Mike Nichols's bio. Funny. 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 Beneath that, one line, Miss May does not exist. That's the entire <laughs> line. <laughs> Funny. Can I it's ask? pretty good. Is- is that the original Twitter bio? That's like, right? That's what everyone is trying to accomplish in their Twitter bio. Right. Being that fucking cool. Being, and that kind of over it. That kind of like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I know I'm, I know I'm the best. I don't exist. Uh, maybe I should buy improvisations to music on vinyl right now. Yeah. 50 bucks. Yeah. Uh, anyway, a new leaf. A new ben, leaf. did you like this movie? This movie's so fucking funny. I really liked it. I never seen. Uh, you never seen a May. Never seen a May. Yeah. Never seen a May. So um, never smelled a May flower. Mm. I have not. I liked it a lot. It was we- it was like weird also to see Mathau because he's not I, you playing. Know, and I've said this on the. He's not doing what you might right. Okay, we, go we ahead, gotta sorry. just dig right in to talk about math out. Ben, what what do you have to say? But there's a lot of math out talking about Fucking let's oh, Yeah, I'll I'll be I'll just say like I you know, I've been on this podcast and, and said many times and I don't watch old movies because it's old. Sure. You know, and I just find right. it strange. It's like hard to get into. It's like that was a long time ago. 
It's so dusty. <laughs> you, but, you start coughing because uh, there's so much yeah. dust. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and like, I love me some grumpy old men. Yeah, of course. And even grumpier old men. I like them both. That's the thing. Like, Walter Matthau must have been one of your favorite movie stars in the 90s. I mean, he's in Dennis the Menace, a.k.a. the Ben Hosley story. Oh, 100%. I I idolized Dennis. Right, and even Out to Sea. Yeah, I mean. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so totally. So, like, that's how I'm seeing seeing Walter now, and I'm like, he was a young man ever? But let's say this. Younger. (laughs) Younger. Because he's still, I mean, at this, this movie... He's 51. Right. I was going to say, many people credit this as being the movie that allowed him to survive the, the transition to new Hollywood. It, it made him avoid the trap of being seen as a stodgy kind of institution guy from the old studio system because right. he was right on that edge. You know, and this movie showed and then he does shit like, uh, obviously, uh, Bad News Bears and shit. You know, he. Yeah. He's, Pelham 123. That, that's all right. coming up. Right. But he's very strategic about how to not come off as your, your dad's movie star. And considering that, I mean, uh, Odd Couple is only 1968, the culture just shifts so hard where the guy is like, I can't just do Neil Simon movies anymore. I'm going to be look like a grandpa. Because Cactus Flower is a couple years before this, and uh, Hello Dolly is is also, and like Hello Dolly, that's that's a big old fashioned musical. He is, I I do yeah. enjoy Walter Matthau, but Cactus Flower that feels like more where he's like, sure, I can be kind of a stodgy guy, you know, who the times are changing around, but like, right. I, and I can ride that wave. That'll be what I do, right? Right. But like, I I think in many ways, I mean, like. Lemon transforms his entire persona, essentially, survive in New Hollywood, right? He becomes, like, kind of the old authority th- figure, the sad old man, and, like, serious dramas. A serious and- act. Very right, serious, right. yes. I mean, like, he'll still do comedies, but, right, he but really... F- you know, far yeah. fewer, you know? Save and the out- Tiger, the front, you know, uh, you know, I guess the front page, that's a comedy. Uh, but, like, you know, China Syndrome, that's yes. something. He becomes serious. Uh, missing, yeah. So right, good in right, missing. Right, right. Uh, but yes, but but Mathel largely remains a comedy star and he pulls off that difficult transition. People always talk about how well Paul Newman did that, where he became like the gray haired anti-authority figure, you know. Um, but a lot of guys just got left behind when that happened. And that was another reason I think Paramount really wanted Elaine May so badly is this is like the shift has happened. Uh, Easy Rider has happened. The BBS movies have happened. And it's very clear that like there's a younger audience who's very engaged. They care about who's directing the movie. They want things that feel more anarchic, that speak to issues, you know, whether comedically or seriously. And they're maybe the people who who are willing to throw down their dollars the fastest. And so the whole uh, studio system uh, sort of shifts to target that audience. And Mathau is smart enough to understand that this is a good film for him to be in. But it's very funny that he is 51 in this movie and essentially is playing, for me to use this term for the second time in one episode, a little Lord Fauntleroy character, right? I mean, he's this basset hound of a man who feels very low status. I mean, I feel like every, you know, uh, Mathau performance up until this point is he's very blue collar. He's sort of like put upon, right? Or he play, well, he also will p- often play like the professor or like in Failsafe or, you know, a face in the crowd. Like he's like the guy with the pipe essentially who's like, well, here's yeah. the situation. Like he would do a lot of that. But yes, he would play. I mean, in the, you know, Oscar in The Odd Couple, that he's... He's sort of the slob. He's, He's slob. The, yeah, right. Yeah, that's that's the you know. But I think of him more as 
the straight man like by and large yeah it's also just very funny to cast him in like what is ostensibly a cary grant part right like that's the first major joke of this movie i just love a guy who's so rich that he doesn't exist in our dimension that just always makes me laugh like the mr burns type where it's just like he he's never eaten lunch like i've eaten lunch right just like he just there's a whole other set of rules for how this guy exists so every scene where he's like discussing wine and she's like talking about like wine coolers essentially and he's just like completely flummoxed i i it just it, it really presses my buttons i really love it but i'll say this it's a great performance but innately and i mean no disrespect by saying this walter matho does not have a fancy face he no, does not he have doesn't. a fancy voice so there's immediate comedy from just this guy playing that sort of un unearthly rich person right absolutely like well yeah. he's bad at it he's bad at right. it that's what i think is great about bad it at being too. a rich guy yeah he's he's no he's yeah. not right yeah he doesn't right. wear it well he doesn't wear it well he's not carrying on this legacy no. well and that's why he fails at it he knows all the words sure. so he knows like the the lingo yeah but he also feels like a 51 year old 10 year old you know i mean it's just yeah. even down to his <laughs> so hairstyle in this movie and his little suits feel like things that you make a kid wear at like his first communion or something yeah, the butler, you know like putting the bib on him and all yeah. that i mean god i love a butler too oh <sighs> the butler's so good in this but let's also say his fucking little race car helmet <laughs> yes i mean the opening joke of this movie such is a good establishing joke yes. uh which is the, the 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 you know hospital you know ekg beeping right. and then it turns out it's his car and they're like well how often do you take it in he's like two three times a month <laughs> or a week sorry it's a week right yeah. he's like well how, t- how often do you take it out like how often do you drive it uh, two three times a week he's just bad at everything but he wears this little helmet when he drives off uh and it's this thing I love Elaine May does where you just have, like, you you do the setup really quickly, right? She's such a master at the comedic montage for uh, establishing and world building and character development and everything. You have this series of him seeing him in increasingly ridiculous situations in the plane, right? On the horses, uh, always just talking about the same thing that the auto mechanics told him about the problem with the car, Right. Right. And and then he has the the hammer drop. He's out of money. Right. Yeah. No more money. He spends more than he makes every year. And he exists right. in such a disconnected state that he cannot even comprehend the concept that he's out of money. You have no capital. <laughs> he has no capital. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> but this check bounce. Right. That scene is like very good right because the check costs six thousand dollars and you don't have six thousand dollars there's a moment where the man playing whoever it is his financial manager uh literally like just comes short of doing a take to camera <laughs> right yes. it's like he explains it to me he goes do you understand he goes yes he goes thank god and then matthew goes like so where's my money and the guy <laughs> just comes one like millimeter short of directly looking down the barrel of the lens it's so restrained uh but that scene is so good and then you go of course to his uncle james coco james fucking coco man he's the best oh my god movies Um, should have never stopped having guys who look like james coco in them 
it's kind of like our when we were rhapsodizing about um, from Thief, uh, Robert Prosky. Oh, yeah, just that, Prosky. Just another t- another type like that where you're like, oh, this guy was like, you know, he like this just this guy from the Bronx yeah. who just looks like a Mad Magazine cartoon, right? Like he's just like he's like three foot tall, three foot wide, bald, yes. like at the age of twelve. Always wearing like a suit that doesn't quite fit. I don't know how to describe James Coco. An Oscar nominated great actor, like to be clear. Like not just, but like, but just what a look, what a look he has. Let's also say that 1983, okay? James Coco, who was known for being portly, releases a book called The James Coco Diet, right? That explains, I cracked it. (laughs) None of these diets ever worked for me. I cracked it. Here's how to lose weight the James Coco way. It gives him like a second thrust of his career. He goes on talk shows. He becomes a late night guest, all talking about the James Coco diet. It's almost like a Jane Fonda workout thing. He dies four years later of a heart attack. It didn't work. (laughs) I'm so sorry to say it didn't work. It didn't work. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, James Uh. Coco. It didn't work. He's the best, James Coco. Um, but this is a guy who's good at being rich, right? This guy's just as gross, but he knows how to do in, it. In this movie, yes. He he essentially looks like the Duke from Dune. He's right. sitting at this table, like popping he's, grapes in his and mouth. Baron Harkon and floating over the chair. Yeah. The Baron, that's what I mean. Like, he's, uh, he's uh, you know, everything is like silver. Like, it's the most, ge- everything he says is just like, <laughs> Oh, you know, like like that. There, there's that amazing split diapeter shot where yes. uh, uh, Walter Matthau is in his mouth in between his teeth before he takes another grape. <laughs> the, the, the Matthau is like covered in sweat in that scene. Yeah. It's so uncomfortable. And like it just, it, which all feels like a perfect choice. Like you feel like he's been sitting there for hours. Just his hair. There's something about him having like these sideburns and like these floppy bangs Tufts, and everything. Little, right. Yes. Right. These brightly colored suits or ties or handkerchiefs or whatever. Let's also just say, you know, I, I really I was I rewatched this movie and the entire time I was thinking, can I back this statement up? Is there no one else? But I really, really think I stand behind this. Walter Matthau, the funniest face in the history of movies. Right? I mean, a, a, a face that can close a movie just just with the face, right? Like, but just you know. close any scene, can button any any joke, you know? Just a cut to Walter Matthau is always a perfect punchline. He's got great lines. And I'm not saying, I'm saying like, like the crinkles yeah. of his skin on his face. Well, to to the point that when he dies, he's only eighty years old. It feels like he's a thousand. Like in those light late <laughs> yeah. year movies, in Hanging Up, which we covered on His this last film, yeah, show, right. He's so craggy and fascinating to look at. Oh man, The Odd Couple too. Remember The Odd Couple yeah, too? Who could forget? I feel like we talk about that a lot. Yeah. Uh, he uh, he just had like the droopiest face in the world, and it's funny when you see him like his early roles at the beginning of his career, like Lonely or the Brave. I think is like a pretty young performance from him. Um, you you just want to like say like, hey man, whatever, like just come back in like five years, you know? Like, what do you do with a catcher's mitt? You, you put a baseball in, you tie some twine around it, and put it in a bathtub. Can you do that to your face? Like, he just never looked right as a young guy, you know? 
And then by like 30, it was like, yes. okay, now it's settled. Now you look 50, you're good to go. Right. We're cursed with the knowledge of how great he's going to look in the 70s. Yes. But yes, absolutely. Uh, when you see him in a face in the crowd or whatever, you're kind of like, well, yeah, why is Walter Matthau look like he got a facelift? Right. Why is he so smooth? What's going on? Right. Like, Who airbrushed Walter Matthau? Yeah. I love him. I love Matthau. Is he he's he's cool, right? What's his deal? I don't know much about him. He was married to the same lady for 41 years. That's he cool. would tell people his real name was Matachansky. Yeah, he's like jokingly uh credited. An earthquake. An earthquake. Way, I'm sorry. Let me get this right. He, the name it's longer, he told people yeah. it was Matusha Chanskayaski. Matusha fits very funny. Matusha Yanska, uh, 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 Chaska Yansky. And when he, Yasky, I'm sorry. When his, uh, when he died and people asked his son about it, he was like, that's absolute bullshit. His real name was Mathau, but it was O.W. Yes, yes. He, he is, just thought that was funny to tell people. He just thinks it's funny, right? Because he's the son of Jewish immigrants and he probably was just like, right, what if I just had the most ludicrous we name? We changed that got, like, it at Ellis Island. It was Yamanasamakamakatansky. Right, right, exactly. What a good voice he's got. But he's doing this weird voice in this movie. That's, that's the thing. So he's funny. Like almost doing received pronunciation, right? Right. He's playing he's doing I'm a he's doing a fancy man voice. Yes. But it's so funny sounding. And even just his posture, the way he like right. sort of like holds up his chin and juts out right. his chest. Yes. The, the, just adds to the unreality. It's hilarious. The, the premise of this movie, obviously, is that he decides he has to marry to get yeah. money. That's his right. his only means of survival. He's going to lose all his money. He's going to have to give up everything he has. His twisted uncle, James Coco, offers him a $50,000 loan, but he has to pay it back in a week. So he has one week to find a rich woman to marry and seize control of her finances. Before that, though, you have what for me is the funniest uh, sequence of the entire film, though it's an extended sequence, which is him saying goodbye <laughs> to wealth. It's so funny. <laughs> it's so funny. That is one of, that is one of the it's so funniest things so visually ingenious. Ever. Too. Just the way, it, yeah. It's incredible. And also just uh, Aline May knowing how to use yeah. music yeah. for yeah. comedy, right? Uh, but but yes, he leaves the meeting with his business manager. I guess it happens, I think, before he goes to see his uncle. That's the the lifeline. Um, but he goes to all his favorite places. They play this really sad operatic music. It is uh, uh, in a monastery garden. In a monastery garden, by Yeah, Catelby. Uh, but uh, he goes to like his favorite restaurant and they go like, sir, do you want to sit down? And he goes like, no, I just wanted to make sure it's still there. And this like huge swooning music is playing. He goes to the club to make sure he can still get in. He just says goodbye to all his privilege, but he plays it so sullenly and the music is so serious and there's just no winking. And it's just the, the, the comedy is just from the severity of it, right? That it's truly a sequence of mourning without any release. And you can imagine if a studio is looking at the dailies, they're like, Elaine, this is a comedy. What are you doing? <laughs> it's so funny, though. So, But it has to be cut together. You have to have the vision of understanding the larger joke she's telling. Uh, but yes. yes, it's so funny. He is inconsolable. He's floated the $50,000 loan. And then he goes on sort of a series of speed dating. His his butler, you know, he tells him the situation goes like, but if I lose it all, you'll still be with me. And he's like, let's just focus on meeting a woman, right? So the butler's <laughs> very invested in 
I don't want to lose my job here. Right. He's like, I'd give my two weeks notice. Yeah. Right. But but going back to the point that this character is just like a child, like a baby. The first date he goes on is a woman who he is terrified of because her breasts are too large. Like he is terrified of anything. He doesn't want her to. Yes. This movie is hilariously rated G. Yeah. And uh, and uh, she right is about to unbutton her. Uh, bathing suit top or whatever yeah. it is and then he's like don't let them out <laughs> which is funny right and then it's a hard cut to his butler putting like calamine lotion on his rashes yes uh but yes just he he does not know how to coexist with another person which is one of the fundamental things i think in this cut the movie ends up being about uh and also he just does not know how to do anything outside of his comfort zone uh, all these dates are going poorly. They're not connecting for one reason or another. And then he gets the tip off about this woman who is an eccentric rich lady. She's very rich. She's the full, yes. got the full inheritance from her dead father. Right. But she's, she's not spending the money. Right. Like she just wants to be with her plants. Right. The estate is not contested, but she is not a woman of the same sort of culture that he is. And that's the other thing. She works. She loves plants. And she works as a professor. Botanist. Yep. Right. In botany. And that's disgusting to this class. That Why would you do something? You <laughs> right. don't that, need that to. sounds desperate. Right. <laughs> exactly. That yes. is unbecoming. But he goes to this uh, private club and just plays it perfectly. Right. I mean, she comes in and is just like, you know, beyond wallflower. I mean, dropping every single drink. Right embarrassing yeah. herself in front of everyone every faux pas and he just takes the grandstand uh you know how dare you judge this woman uh knowing that this is someone who probably has never had anyone pay any sort of positive attention to her her entire life that's that's how he bewitches her is just right. by paying attention to her right so i mean the courtship on on that side is immediate she is just immediately in the bag for the fact that he is pretending to care about her um, and, and like, he is trying to sort of culturally, uh, educate her. There's the wine scene. There's the, I mean, I mean during their honeymoon, the incredible scene where he tries to fit her into the toga oh. style, uh, nightgown that just takes so long. Like, right. you're like, surely we're cutting out of this. And she's like, no. Once again, like shittier comedy would be 90 minutes of this now, right? The movie is 90 minutes of him trying to convince her to say yes right right high low comedy right like he's like come on you have to be fancy and she's like oh but i like it this way and right and like, then you yeah. also get the pygmalion thing of him trying to teach her how to be a little classier but they they do exactly as much of that as will still be entertaining and then oh, yeah. you meet her business manager uh who is kind of a con man right he works in the yep. same building as uh, Matthau's business manager, but he's a more low rent kind of greasy guy. Jack Weston, who oh, is also very funny. He is such a scumbag. Yeah, I was going to say, man. He's also so good in Ishtar. Oh, is he? Oh, sure. Like, excited for that. Great yeah. role in Ishtar. Yeah. Well, I, I'll just say, like, what is so effective about his character, it's so over the top scum mm -hmm. that it makes Matthau look less. Like it makes him look less 
bad. Automatic sympathy, right. Yes, because, I mean, this guy just, his, his suits look like they smell bad. His, yeah. like, homeover can barely stay down. Like, everything about this guy just, like, just reeks of seediness. Um, and he's clearly just been sort of, like, working her books. He's got all of his friends on her payroll. Uh, they're all fleecing her for everything she's got. And he is absolutely terrified by Mathau coming in and starting to, like, vie for her fortune. Um, so, once again... You feel like this could be the entire movie. Mathau's trying to woo her. This guy's trying to catch Mathau and expose him, right? But instead, very quickly, you get to the scene where he shows up and he goes, look, I got it. Here's the evidence. You know, and Mathau, this is the night he's planning on proposing. He's got his butler to get her favorite drink, which is these weird wine coolers that she loves with right. lime juice. Yep. And uh, the, it's the, is the business manager her uncle as well? Am I misremembering um, that? No, I don't think so. It's just her lawyer. Yeah. It's just, you know, I think it's just her lawyer. Uh, he shows up and says, here's the paper trail. This is the loan. He's dirt poor now. The only way he can get the money back is to marry someone. He's only with you because of this. And Mathau tries to, like, push back, right? You know, how dare you slanderous? It's libel. I'll sue you. This and that. And uh, do you have any proof? And he goes, yes, I have copious amounts of proof. Here's all the proof. <laughs> uh -huh. And then Mathau immediately pivots to the, you know, well, at first, you know, the she's all that. At first, this was a Bet, but then I never knew I would actually develop real feelings for you. And her response is just like, if you had told me on the first day that you needed money, I would have married you then. Why did you wait five days? <laughs> right. Well, it's also because he's going to kill himself. Right, 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 is, right. That's the other part. <laughs> but in the, in a classy way, he's just like, like he's a Roman emperor who has to fall on his sword because he doesn't have a fucking paycheck anymore. Yeah. I, I, she's also just so funny. Like, this is a type the sort of wallflower, the like extreme nerd, right? Yeah. Who like is, but she's, she just has a weird humanity to it without sacrificing oddball laughs, like big laughs. They're just, these are two fundamentally funny actors playing fundamentally funny characters as designed. The other thing I just looked at is her first choice for uh, the Mathau role was Christopher Plummer, who is the obvious if you're just casting by type. Fancy rich man, right. And Paramount was the one who insisted on it being Mathau because he was box office. Walter Mathau at that point ranked the seventh biggest box office draw in Hollywood, which is just a wild thing to think about. Cactus Flower, big yeah. hit. Hello, Dolly, big hit. No, I'm not, I'm not denying his track record, but it's just like if Paul Giamatti was currently the seventh biggest box office star in Hollywood, you yes. know? Yes. Um, and uh, it's so much funnier because it's 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 not, you know, uh, uh, the obvious typecastings. And so they get married. They get married very quickly. There, there's that great scene where now the lawyer is giving her away at the wedding and he refuses to step away while the wedding is actually happening. Yeah, like as going down the aisle, he's still yeah. being like, like. I'll kill myself. Like, right. <laughs> like, just like to the last second, still trying to like change things in his favor. But also, like, the actual ceremony is happening and he's physically wedged himself between the two of them. Right. Right. And, and the priest has to say, like, would you mind taking a step back? Yep. We skipped over it just really quickly. Want to shout out when he drops the glass and then kneels down into the glass. Oh, funny. Yes. Like, just. It's like, 
what, I don't know. What's it's, his line? It's like, oh no, I, I it's one of my favorite exercises. Yeah, it's so fucking fun. so the, funny. His deadpan, ugh. but so just, much of it just, is his face. I'm not saying this in any disrespect to his line deliveries, but it's just cutting to his face after something happens is always funny. It's weird situational comedy that you've never seen before and hasn't been repeated since. Like, that's what's so weird about it. Like, I'm like, this is this weird bit that's very funny. And it's just like, it's just in this movie. It's not like, uh, like an easy, repeatable or like commonplace like thing. I mean, and here are just lines that like are so funny that you almost don't process them when they're being said. Like they don't get a laugh out of you immediately. I mean, David, do you want to read the one, the glass one? Kneeling on glass is my favorite pastime. It keeps me from slouching. <laughs> I can't even <laughs> deliver the whole line without laughing. <laughs> but then, but then this one, I think this is when he's first coming on to her, and he's saying like, "You and I were the same. We're the same class, the same species, Homo, the same genus." Right? He does that whole speech. Yes. And yes. then he says, "The only difference between us is I am a man and you are a woman, and we don't have to let that interfere if we are reasonably careful." <laughs> oh God! Just, just, I mean, the opening line you did, just the. The, the wordiness of these lines sometimes is, is part of the fun. Yes. Oh, I, I love it. Um, and the butler being like, how many men these days, days require the services of a gentleman's gentleman? How many have yeah. your devotion to form? <laughs> You've managed to keep alive traditions that were dead before you were born. Like, <laughs> yes. The butler just likes that he's, even if he's not the best at it, that he's trying yeah. to be as fancy and useless a rich person as possible. I love the term gentleman's gentleman. It's right <laughs> up there for me with gentleman. gentleman's thief. I like any gentleman's <laughs> blank. Gotta watch this Lupin uh, Netflix show. I know people by love the way, it with Omar's. Yeah, yeah. yeah Omar Sy. Omar Sy rules. Yeah, he does. Uh, but it. But it's a show about a guy who wants to be like the original Lupin, right? It's not a, a reboot. He's like inspired by the. Books. I think. I, I yes. think so. I don't know. It's modern. Yes. Right. Well, it seemed like from the trailer, it's almost like a special power or something, or like that you inherit or is passed along. It's. I'm intrigued by it too. You got the touch. It's a, what? It's like the biggest show in the world now. Everyone loves it. Yeah, I'm checking here that it's been watched by God Himself. That was with the Netflix Whoa. press release that they just. Well, put I'm out. sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I got a new update. It said it's been watched by over 70 million gods in the first 24 hours. <laughs> right. Yeah. The all of Mount Olympus is yeah. watched. <laughs> uh, yes. So they get married. He goes to her home. Right. Uh, her her estate. He finds that essentially. People have had the idea that he had years right. ago. Like right. Everyone's grifting this lady. Right. There's like a subsistence economy around her of just people doing no work for lots of money and giving half the check to, to her lawyer. The other thing that's great is they feel like carnies. Like they're not even keeping up the appearances of like, <laughs> right? oh, yes, that's I am a so fancy funny. waiter. Right. They're so out of it that when he gets in there, they just greet him with like cheers. They're like, hey, welcome to the club. You're right. going to take this rich lady's money, right? Right? That's the vibe. Yeah, it's great here. The water is warm. <laughs> they Dive walk in. in on the driver fucking on the floor. And yes. she's just like, well, <laughs> what are they going to do? 
And it's such a good detail that when they go to the lawyer and they're complaining about the fact that Matho fired all of them, they're wearing far fancier clothes than when yeah. they're working for her. So it's like right. they look more low rent when they're they ostensibly can dress up, right? <laughs> right. And they've 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 fleeced this woman for so much money that they certainly have the the baubles and riches. Do you know Doris Roberts? Of course, she's like sort of the main one. Yes, she's uh, really funny. Who plays uh, Groden's mother very, very briefly in Heartbreak Kid? Uh, is another person where uh, she's best known, obviously, as playing uh, Ray's mom on Everybody Loves Raymond, and is very bizarre to see her young. Uh, she's also in Pelham One Two Three. She's the mayor's wife, uh, but I definitely don't really know what Doris Roberts. You have to tell me that it's Doris Roberts because yeah. yes, I see her as uh obviously uh i don't remember the character's name even uh M- marie yes but it's this um, incredibly funny twist in the movie where it's like this isn't one of those movies about somehow begrudgingly he becomes a better person he becomes a better asshole right i mean it's like what happens is his yes. growth is he actually learns how to like be aware of the finances and balance the book but he doesn't exactly. gain like a humanity he he fools this woman into marrying her. Yeah. He takes her money. Now, he doesn't kill her, which is his original plan. Right. But nonetheless, he gets away with it. She never really finds out like that he harbored malicious intent. Yeah. And at the end of the day, he's like, I suppose I'll simply have to live you know, life with you and even maybe do some teaching on the side like you, like you do. It doesn't sound too terrible. Right. Right. He's sort of like, ah, you know, I mean, you know, sort of 50, 50 for me, mezzo, mezzo, you know, like this guy is getting away with everything and you walk out of the movie happy. Like what movie could pull that off? But it's the Fern discovery. Well, yes. Yes. Her having this really cool aspect of herself that right. she's like he, he comes to respect it like genuinely that she can yeah. name it right yeah and it's he just, likes the token he likes it but i do think there's something to um there's something just inherent where you're like not only is it just his name i like right because there's ego to it but it's just like it's an impressive thing to have done yes Yes, yes, but but also you know there's he kept, he gets caught like uh you know in his feelings somewhat like he he starts studying botany so he can pretend that he has always shared this passion that she has but then he actually starts to care about it a little bit you know like yeah. it stops being a sort of strategic uh, thing and when she speaks about her dream of getting a plant named after herself it's like for the first time he gets it to a certain degree because he's like oh it's infamy there's there's a class to that you know but he still at this point is like yeah but i mean come on i'm not i don't love her what am i gonna do live with her for the rest of my life and i feel like the two things that happen are one uh, you know, she feeds into his narcissism in a lot of ways that makes him feel better about himself. And he realizes right. the value of having a partner who supports him, even if he doesn't care for her that much. The second thing is, I think he realizes this isn't that different than most old rich couples. They both, exactly. most of them seem to largely resent each other and can barely tolerate each other. But you live in the same house and you manage it together, you know? The burden on him is low. He right. he's not going to need to give her much. She is she's fully independent. Like she all she wants to do is catalog plants and, and teach about plants. Right, like, some marriage. She's of not asking much of him. Right, exactly. Right. Um, 
And so when, well, yeah, I mean, like, you know, when he's a, and, and, but right. What you're saying though, Griffin is like when he is taking charge of the finances, firing people, yes, you can see that there's the, the sort of the more malicious argument is like, right. He wants all his rivals out of the way. Cause he's going to make the money. Yeah. Right. But you're, as you're pointing out, he's supposedly is bad at finances and right. now he's good at it. So it's like, there is growth. He is kind of using it for her. Yeah. He's intervening on her behalf. And that's about as close to personal growth as he's going to show. And that's a good thing. But it's kind of incredible that this movie pulls off having him, giving him the arc of he sort of learns how to grow up and they learn how to be together without him becoming a better person or falling in love with her. Right? It like pulls off both narrative landing points without actually doing the hacky thing of just like, I, I never realized, you know? Without it ever feeling dopey or cheesy, he's presented, I mean, the, look, the end of the, it's not a long movie, at the end of the movie is that he's presented with her death. Right. He can get away with it. He can She's get away drowning. With it. She can't swim. Right. He he can just let her go. Right. And he sees the fern just accidentally. And he's like, oh, yeah, look, here it is. Right. He's, and then and he's he just like, he catches right. himself that he's so excited by it that he yells out exactly. to her like, look. And then he's bummed out that she's not there to talk to. And he's like, I guess I will stop her from dying. Right. So exactly. I can share this moment of joy with her. But yes, I mean, it, right. Pretty quickly from there. I mean, he cleans house. He manages her whole life. He sort of like builds everything. He takes actual responsibility and consciousness for his incredibly superficial, stupid lifestyle. Um, but but he is better at being the kind of shitty person he wants to be. He's at least sort of self-sustaining. And uh, and then, yes, she mentions this trip she's going on and he has the, the realization of, I could kill her. This is a perfect way to kill her. It's another incredible recurring musical sting. That weird computer music they play oh, yes. whenever yeah, he's, he's calculating a plan. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. It's like a robot in overdrive. Um, yeah, he's filling up, I don't know, seven flasks yes. planning for his trip or whatever when he and the butler start talking. And I feel like the butler kind of knows that he might shoot her in the well, woods. He sees the gun and he's trying to like find a way to not get his ire up, but also like remind him that he doesn't need to kill her. That things are going well. <laughs> Which is not really, yeah, it's not really a plot in the first half of the movie that he's no. going to kill her. He's, it's just that he has to get married. It, that, that sort of just comes in later when he's like going to the greenhouse and he's like, do you have any arsenic? Right. Which in retrospect, that makes sense if he's committed two murders earlier in the film. That's the only, right. It's the only thing where right. you're like, right, is there chunks here that we're sort of losing? Yeah. yeah. But that's the only thing about that yeah. that feels like, oh, is there something lost in the edit? Everything else... Yeah, like you said, Griffin, it's sort of things piling on top of each other. Mm -hmm. It's not like it's a smooth narrative movie, but the movie does not feel cut to death at all. And that's why these reviews are so funny where they're all like, yeah, apparently she hates this and she had like a three hour cut. Yeah, and I'd love to see it, but I loved this movie. Like those right. are like what all the reviews were like. Yeah, it's it's also just like it's a thing I love about screwball comedies. And this is sort of in the tradition of screwball comedies, even though it's outside of that era is like the Preston Surges movies that I love so much. The, the plot changes every 20 minutes, right? It's just like, okay, we've we've wrung that dry. Move on to yeah, the next right. thing. Enough of that. Yes, yeah. Rather than this sort of forced stasis that I think a lot of comedies force themselves into of just 
here's the big hook of our movie. We have to stay on that one hook for as long as possible. And a movie like this is like, here's another hook. Here's another hook. Here's another hook. Here's the section that's about murder. Here's the section about their trip being such a pain in the ass for him, you know? Right. but but there is that scene that's so sweet before they go on the trip where she tells him with pride that she has discovered this this new uh, plant, this new leaf, if you will. And she tells him that it's going to be filed under, uh, what is it? Um, uh, oh, Sophila Grahami. It's, it's, you know, right, G. right, Graham, right. She, that he... Right. That she's Lowell and he's Graham and she says it's going to be under G. And he gets angry at her like, you idiot. Don't you understand? The whole point of doing this is that you can take the credit for it. Why would you put it in my married name? You have this other name that you've had for the rest of your life. And she's like, no, I named after you as like a nice thing, which she could never even consider that someone would not want to take all the credit and glory for something and that someone would do something for someone else out of total compassion. And he's so touched by it, truly, in a self-serving way. He's touched because... It's a tribute to him. A hundred percent, as he should be. Right. And when he sees it himself, he's too excited by it to not share it with her. Yes. Uh, that, that He plays that moment so well at the end. Oh. Where the, just the casual, like, oh, like, here's the fern. Yeah. Uh, and the way he's, like, fumbling. Where's my token? It's so sweet in such a weird, strange way. And Elaine May just sort of quietly, like, clinging onto the rock, waiting to be told when to I let know. go. It's incredible. This movie rules. It is a weirdly sweet movie, and I think it accomplishes that only by not asking for your sympathy for his character. It's a thing with Elaine May, which is just she does not care if you find these people likable. She just wants you to find them entertaining, and she would rather drill down into who they really are and their real behaviors rather than force some sort of like sappy audience uh, uh, sort of uh, surrogacy, you know? Definitely. And like, we're going to see it in her next film, The Heartbreak Kid. Like, I feel like she only makes the characters more difficult to like, you know, while while not sacri- not not exiting the essentially romantic comedy genre. She's like, this is still going to be a romantic comedy, but these characters are going to be even more ostensibly monstrous and mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be great. Yeah, I'm just looking here. The, the murders were that he figures out that Henrietta is being blackmailed by the lawyer and uh, and and others, and that's who he starts to murder. He starts to murder the other people who are soaking her her funds. Yes, they, I think Paramount was just like, why would this be a movie about him getting away with murder? That doesn't yeah. make any sense. Like this is the, the 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 structure of this movie should be about their relationship. That's what it's about, and. She uh, agreed and took them to court. So, you know, again, I'd love to see her cut. I'd yeah. love to see it. Just wild. But but a lot of big people, uh, you know, like Neil Simon and Cassavetes see this movie and go like, oh, that's an interesting filmmaker. And that's Absolutely. that's how the next two movies happen. Yeah. And it is still, I mean, there's probably just, it's so rare for a woman to be directing a movie, a Hollywood yeah. movie in the 70s. So the, 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 I'm sure that was a selling point or a point of interest in a lot of ways. Uh, the movie was not a huge hit, but it did pretty, no, it did it okay. Yeah. yeah. 
there was another good special feature on the the Olive Films disc that is uh, Amy Heckerling talking about Elaine May and her own experiences struggling as a woman in uh, comedies, making comedies in Hollywood. Elaine May as sort of uh, her idol, but said that when she realized as a young girl that she wanted to be a director, she said to her father, uh, you know, that's what I want to do. And he said, that's not a respectable job for women. Women don't make movies. And he threw the newspaper in front of her and said, look here. Are any of these movies directed by women? And she flipped through the pages and none of them were. And then she saw the poster for A New Leaf. And it was you, – you do have to think about that of just like mm-hmm. it was such a seismic thing to have one woman who's making a movie, is already that known a quantity, is also the star of it. It's very much her film. It's being sold on her reputation even if she has one of the biggest box office stars around her. It, in and of itself, it's a big shift, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Even if the movie weren't fucking rad as hell. And it is rad as hell. But I think, you know, like Joan Rivers gets to direct a film a couple years later. You know, mm. I mean, I think things like that happen largely because of Elaine May and saying, like, I don't know if a woman's funny. I guess we can like let her make a movie. Right. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm trying to find. I guess we're doing 1971 in film, obviously. I think There's we no have box to. Data here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean. Wikipedia claims like it fared poorly at the box office. I'm seeing about five million dollars gross, which is not crazy, you know. Um, it had a run at Radio City Music Hall, you know, back in the day where like that's a thing you could do as a movie. Um, she, the Heartbreak Kid is the next year. Wow! So she's obviously riding high enough that like she you yeah. know, she descend. This is the only time that she like, just goes from project to project. That's the thing. I mean, she was liked so much by tastemakers. She had so much innate cool cachet, you know. Definitely. Um, but Griffin, do you want to tell me what the number one movie of 1971 was? Hmm. The biggest hit, and it's a uh, you know a film that was Oscar. You know, got lots of Oscar attention. It's a a three-hour musical epic. Hmm. 19- Number one most successful film. Is it Oliver? Nope. That's I think Oliver is a couple years earlier. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, it's this funny thing where you look at the the top ten here and you're like, right, New Hollywood is inching in. Right. But it is not quite like because the next year is the Godfather, where it's like, okay, all of a sudden everything right. is gonna start to change. Yeah. And is is does Midnight Cowboy win? Best picture in 70. I think it's 69. 69's the big year, obviously, where it's Bonnie and Clyde and Yes, it's 69. Yes. Right. Okay, so this is a big three-hour musical. This is sort of a step back. This is a slightly more old Hollywood movie. I guess so. It's a darker musical, I guess. But I would, you know, it's the kind of thing you would put on in a high school. Yeah, but it's not West Side Story. It's not Cabaret. It's not Oliver. It's a no. darker musical. It's not Sound of sort Music. Of. Yeah, yeah, no, on a relative scale. Mm. Uh, Is that one about Jesus? Not about Jesus. Not Jesus Christ Superstar. No. no. Um, Does it have a traditional like musical star in it, or is it a different type of actor doing a musical? This guy is famous for being in this movie. He's in other stuff. Wow. Uh, but I feel like this guy. It's this not guy Fiddler is known on by the one name. It's Fiddler. Fiddler on the, on the Roof, roof the was the highest film. grossing film of nine. Number one. David, I w- I don't know why. I don't know what led me there. This is how I fill my days and nights now. But I went down a big Topol rabbit hole the other day because I was just hey. like, that's an interesting career. Absolutely, Chaim Topol. Look, Topol was on the front of my mind. 
Fiddler on the Roof was on the front of my mind. I never, ever would have guessed that was the highest grossing film of its year. Numero uno. If I was a rich man. He was. Astonishing. He was. He's fucking loaded. Now, number two, Griffin, it's one of those movies where you're like, oh, oh, I, I forgot that that was a word of mouth, like roadshow success, like sort of a classic, you know, sort of a weird, like cult classic. Dad Is it Billy movie. Jack? Billy Jack. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, sort of what do you call that? Like, it's like a sort of indie Western right. about a guy, you know, distributing hard justice. But it was, right. Made by an outsider. Right. It was like an independent movie by a guy who was like, I should make a movie about how much of a badass I am, how I'm the last good American. And people right. flock Tom to Luff. it. It just becomes one of these weird, like pop culture jokes, like, you know, like that you would put on like a Billy Jack sequel. Right. You know, I, mean, I don't yes. know. When I would, as a strange child, look at box office charts and ask my father to explain to me the movies I didn't recognize by name. I just remember that being yeah. one of those ones where he was just like, I don't even know how I describe this thing to you. Like he was some guy and everyone made fun of him and then it just played for like two years and it was the biggest right. hit and he made a bunch of sequels, but he never did really anything else outside of Billy Jack. That's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's I already forgot. Tom McLaughlin. Is that his name? Tom Laughlin. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, what if there was a guy who's like a Vietnam vet, but also he's like a martial artist, but also he's a cowboy. Right. And he beats up uh, hippies, essentially. But he's also half Navajo. You have to say also he's he, a I, real yeah, well, American. I don't want to say that. He's a real that. American, Billy Jack. <laughs> because I don't think Tom Laughlin was half Navajo. Absolutely but, uh, not. Zero chance. Uh, number three at the box office this year was the Best Picture winner. And it's a great movie. And we'll do it on this podcast one day. And it's a gritty, it's the kind of gritty new Hollywood movie that is becoming the norm huh. in the 70s. But it's also a crime drama. Like It's, a, it's know, French it's, Connection, right? It's the French Connection. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Ben, have you ever seen The French Connection? I have not. You, You'd fucking love it. Ben, you'll love it. You what will if there was just a grumpy it. old cop with a pork pie hat named Popeye who, you know, shot French heroin dealers yeah. in the subway? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucking the best. There's so that's a- the best picture winner. I gotta, I gotta watch old movies. Th- this I, is, I feel like, yeah. I feel like, am I? The, I don't know. I, I'm You're not, rhapsodizing about the '70s over here. I mean, why don't why you know why not dip your toe? Because yeah, I love old music. Well, and like French Connection is when old movies get new. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure, sure. They get wrong. Yeah, it's like it's it's almost an embarrassment. I think that's what it is. Is there's just so much that I know I, I haven't seen. Never feel embarrassed about something you haven't seen. It's just a great opportunity to see it. Yeah, you know, whatever. You it's know, I, I'm, I'm I become a big proponent of when people are like embarrassed and they go like, "Oh, you're gonna yell at me," but I haven't seen blank. I'm like, I'm not gonna yell at you. I'm gonna tell you how exciting it is that you have the opportunity to watch right. that for the first time. And if you don't feel like watching it, don't. But I think you would like that movie. Or just as often I'll say to somebody, you probably wouldn't like that. Like, I know everyone probably guilt trips you because you haven't seen Blank, but you might not like it. I don't know. You know, but it's nice, like, to say to you, Ben, you would love The French Connection. Do you know what the name of that character is? Popeye Doyle. Popeye Doyle. He wears a pork pie hat. He eats fried chicken. Is he over it? 
Oh, beyond over it. <laughs> he's, he's fucking, he lives on over it boulevard. Ben, that, that, you, 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 you could argue this guy was never under it. Right, exactly. <laughs> he's bored yeah. over it. Not only that, when he interrogates people, right? Like when he interrogates like potential suspects on the street, he holds them up and asks them, do you pick your feet in Poughkeepsie? Funny. That's his opener. It won Best Picture and Best Actor. Here. Here are the five Oscar nominees for Best Picture this okay. year, Griffiths. Nicholas and Alexandra, which is your old Tony mm-hmm. costume uh, period epic. It's the last picture show, which is Ugh, which my you know, we'll talk more about Bogdanovich next week. Yes, it was very, very good. And Cloris Leachman, R.I.P., let's just say it. The day we're recording this is the day that Cloris, one of the best to ever R. do R.I.P., Crazy Mama herself. Yes. All I've been doing is watching uh, Mary Tyler Moore for the last couple of months. And I Griff- just, I always love that lady. I love her every time I see her, but I've spent like two months watching her day and night, and she's just the fucking best. She's the fucking best. Um, uh, uh, I've also been watching Mary Tyler Moore recently. It's Griffin so good, your, right? Your, uh, yeah, of course, the best. I love the best. It. But Phyllis rules. Fiddler on the Roof, French Connection, the fifth nominee, of course, a Clockwork Orange. Cra- wow. It's a crazy old and new yeah. variety there. You know what I mean? Clockwork Orange is number What's seven. What's the, the Mark Harris book? Like 69 is that same thing Pictures where you have like four new yeah. Hollywood movies and then Dr. Doolittle. Like there was always that clash in the 70s where you'd have one thing that was so like old institution and then these things that are just so shaggy and odd and a lot of times the shaggy odd ones won uh it was pretty odd now griffin the number four movie in 1971 is like a a cheesy coming-of-age drama that i feel like is essentially forgotten i basically have never heard of this movie but it was a big hit i don't Hmm. i don't think there's any way you know what this movie is called <laughs> it's a Robert Mulligan film okay. starring Gary Grimes, Jerry Hauser, and Jennifer O'Neill. Hmm. <laughs> I think I'm going to go uh, when you say the title, but I, I don't think there's any chance I recall it. It's called Summer of 42. Oh, yeah. Well, I you know why I know that title? Because of the Simpsons episode. Exactly. But like, it's not, I, no one's seen that movie like in the last 20, 30 no, years. Absolutely not. Um, absolutely but not. number four at the box office, number five is this year's Bond movie. Uh, so for this year, it would be, I'm, I'm bad at Bond chronology. Is this still, is this Roger Moore? It's the last, it's the last official Connery. Obviously, he does Never Seen Ever Again in the 80s. Right. But that, that doesn't really count. So it's not Diamonds Are Forever, is it? It is Diamonds okay. Are Forever. Okay. Yes, it's yeah. a, Connery's ill-advised return to the Bond franchise. You shouldn't have done it. Um, one of the worst Bond movies. Uh, and then number six, Dirty Harry. Uh, number seven, Clockwork Orange. Number eight, Carnal Knowledge. Number nine, The Last Picture Show. Number ten, Griffin Willard. That's the rat movie. A wild ten, isn't it? Yeah. There's like the, the blockbusters are coming, right? Like yeah. the old-fashioned blockbusters are coming. You're you know, your Poseidon adventure. We got a couple franchises already brewing in there. We got Dirty Harry. We got Bond is now, you know, regular blockbuster material. This year, it's like last picture show cracked the top 10. I know. So wait, are four of the five best picture nominees in the top 10 at the box office? Uh, So French Connection, Fiddler on the Roof, Clockwork Orange, and Last Picture Show. Yes, the only yeah. one that isn't is the Tony Old Fashioned one, Nicholas and Alexandra. Like that's... A- that's even a hard thing to conceive of today. It's hard to conceive of four of the 10 Best Picture nominees Maybe being in the top Maybe you would 10. get one, right. like maximum. There will yes. usually be one that actually was a, an unqualified hit. Right. Anyway. Anyway, it's it's look, it's always 
fun when we get to talk about different eras. Absolutely. We'll do it more. People bring this up a lot where it's like, do they not want to do old movies? We'll do old no. movies. Give me a break. It's hard. No, and, and look, here's the other thing. Uh, the more people continue to listen to the show, right? I'm not putting the onus on you, the listener. No, but that's true. The more we can take a, right. a, bit, uh, right. a bit of a riskier move. Right. Yes. And May's obviously a short series, but we feel confident that the listenership isn't going to dip now. It's a, it's a confidence that you have given us and we try to cash it in. Well, it's a balance. You know, and if we cover someone like Zemeckis, who's a lot bigger and more modern but long, then we'll follow that up with a couple shorter series, you know? Uh, but also at this point, we'll know who won March Madness, and we put a lot of older directors in the bracket. So who knows? Shorty's watching Shorty's. Shorty's watching Shorty's. Remember that? The Comedy Central series? Why did yeah. you. You're, you're calling. I don't know. You said something about Shorty's, and I was just like, remember Shorty's short watching series? Shorties? I don't know. Yeah. 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 Um, anyway. So next week, uh, good luck finding the movie. Oh, yes. We well, should, uh, it's, yes. The Heartbreak Kid is next week. It's often available on YouTube. It probably gets taken down once in a while, but you can literally just type it into YouTube. You just got to be persistent and look for it. It's often somewhere, but it's getting pulled left and right. Uh, but that is next week. That is her biggest hit and we are discussing it with the great Avery Edison, longtime friend, uh, friend IRL, friend of the show, uh, appearing on the show for the first time long overdue. Uh, so great that app. is next week. April will continue to be May. That's right. That's right, baby. Uh, and uh, over on the Patreon, it's early April. We're, we're right. We're well, we're doing. The voyage home. The voyage home just posted. You guys have a episode planned for the eleventh. I don't know if we want to talk about it yet, though. I mean, we can say this here. Obviously, by okay. the point this episode comes out, you we haven't prob- recorded it yet. No, right? so that's the only no. trepidation. Right. We had a notion, which was well, <laughs> there was an idea. There was an idea. I mean, there was there's Newman and Haas. You know, this um, was the idea. What if we do an evening? It was an established, you know, duo act of ours. An evening with Newman and Haas, we finally released the comedy album that was recorded back in the 1950s of the classic (laughs) two-man comedy team, Newman and Haas. (laughs) This is a thing we've considered. Now, the restoration project is going to be very expensive to remaster the audio. We don't know, but if it sounds like something you want, then maybe make that known. We'll probably have decided already by the time you're listening to this, but maybe Oh, not. yeah, you'll have decided already. Maybe we can be talked out of or no, into it. No, you're going to do it. It's going to be fucking great. Okay, great. So listen to an evening with Newman and Haas. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> uh, right, we're done, Griffin. Take we're done. We're done. Folks, thank you so much for listening. Because as we said, it allows us to uh, uh, do stuff like this. It's, it's nice that we've built a show where people will follow us. Uh, even to filmmakers they haven't heard of or harder to track down or any of those things. We really appreciate it. Um, Next week, Heartbreak Kid. Thank you to Great American Novel, Lane Montgomery, for our theme song. Thank you to Joe Bowen and Pat Reynolds for our artwork. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media. And thank you to our editing team, Alex Barron, AJ McKeon, I'll say thank you to our Reddit for posting some real nerdy shit. And uh, thank you uh, to our friends at Night Owl for making some real nerdy merch that you can buy on our Shopify page. Go to patreon.com slash blank check for the things that we just teased, including comedy album that I'm sure is going to be 
very sophisticated. <laughs> yes. And and as always, if I can, this movie has the single longest tagline I have ever seen, and I would like All to right. end the episode by reading it in its entirety. Yeah, go ahead. It's very funny. I was looking at it. Here is the tagline for A New Leaf. The text takes up, conservatively, 50% of the poster, the top 50%. <clears throat> Romeo and Juliet, Bob and Bing, Leopold and Loeb, Heloise and Abelard, Ulysses and Grant, George and Martha, Martha and John, Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice, Bob and Alice, Ted and Carol, Bob and Ted, Carol and Alice, Popeye and Olive Oil, Maggie and Jigs, Pat and Dick, Julie and David, Yoko and John, John and Mary, Byron and his sister, Bonnie and Clyde, Tarzan and Jane, Bill and Koo, Nip and Tuck, Henry VIII, uh, and Anne and Jane and Catherine and Catherine and Catherine, John and Priscilla, Liz and Eddie, Liz and Mike, Liz and Dick, Dick and Sybil, Sybil and Jordan, Eddie and Debbie, Thick and Thin, Muck and Meyer, Frick and Frack, David and Goliath, Moggin and David, Frankie and Johnny, Mama and Mia, Hollywood and Vine, Anthony and Cleopatra, and now Henry and Henrietta, the love couple of the 70s and the laugh riot of the year. I dare anyone to put a longer tagline than that on your poster. 